Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to the Baldcast, a production of John Kanzano's Bald Face Truth. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the Bald Face Truth. Well, I'm live from Reeser Stadium, where, where Oregon State will play Cal. And 44 miles from here, at Autzen Stadium, on Saturday, it'll be Washington and Oregon. It'll be Ducks-Huskies rivalry. It'll be... Cal Bears at the Beavers, a lot at stake. And look, I'm, I'm here to tell you, like, I don't know if this is as good as it was ever. Like in 2008, 2009, Mike Riley at Oregon State, Chip Kelly at Oregon, contending for a Rose Bowl. That was pretty fun. But we are headed toward a game formerly known as the Civil War showdown with the Beavers and the Ducks. Both teams relevant, both teams hunting for bowl games or better. We'll talk about it all on today's show. You'll hear from the new damnation, damnation collective at Oregon State. They have uh, finally joined the collective game in a meaningful way, Oregon State has. We'll talk to one of the founders of damnation. I love that. I love saying that, damnation. Beavers have uh, finally joined the collective game. I wrote about it today at johnconzano.com. Uh, if you have a subscription, free or otherwise, you know you got an email from me this morning saying, hey, here's what I know. I do that uh, as things come down the pipeline. I write just about every day and sometimes multiple times a day. I'm sorry for spamming you, but if you are a free subscriber or a paid subscriber, you know I wrote today about uh, JT Daniels, the former USC, former Georgia quarterback, who's now at West Virginia, and had come out to Oregon State in Corvallis for spring practice. He was out in March, brought his dad with him, watched practices, observed, talked with the coaching staff. There was a lot of uh, speculation that uh, Daniels, who was looking at some other schools, was, was looking for the right opportunity and also the right payday when it came to the NIL world. Now decide how you feel about this because part of this is just maybe the new era of college athletics and part of it is kind of like, hey man, this is going too far. I was all for players getting, you know, to uh, capitalize on their endorsement, but now we have uh, unsanctioned free agency, so to speak, when it comes to the transfer portal. But JG Daniels, um, who's a, who was a really good high school quarterback, five-star recruit, went to USC, transferred from USC to Georgia. When he got to Georgia, he got a seven-figure, seven-figure, I'm going to say it again, seven figures. He got a seven-figure deal from a, uh, a memorabilia company that was having him sign trading cards. So he uh, got 100 bucks a signature, plus he got royalties on some of the memorabilia. So JT Daniels had a nice gig at Georgia. But he lost his starting job, and then he jumped in the portal, and he was looking for the next best opportunity. Now, I don't think JT Daniels was driving this whole 
operation. I think his dad was in the middle of it, and you often with youth sports and kids will find a parent in the middle of it who is a little disillusioned or a little lost. But JT Daniels' dad, you decide if this is a good parent or a parent is going too far, was uh, apparently hunting for the best possible deal for his kid. Now, I'm not saying that's wrong. You should be looking out for your kids. You should be feeding your kids. You should be making sure that you advise your kids. You should be good. You should be a good parent. But they were looking for a personal chef. They were looking for a four-bedroom rental house. Apparently, one of the bedrooms is going to be used for exercise equipment and whatnot. And they were looking for a six-figure endorsement deal. So they're looking for a hundred grand or more. And that was kind of the now. J.T. Daniels wasn't having this conversation. His dad was having this conversation with boosters at Oregon State who uh, were not as organized or involved as maybe some of the other booster collectives at some of the big-time universities and other conferences. Remember, J.T. Daniels came from Georgia to, uh, you know, he's out in Corvallis. He's looking at Oregon State. He looked at West Virginia and some other places. Ultimately, he ended up at West Virginia in part, I think, because West Virginia's collective was a little more evolved. It was more advanced. It uh, had uh, better footing. It had a better idea of what it wanted to be. Uh, it had more money. And Oregon State had some boosters that were trying to do some things in that NIL space, but they just weren't as organized, and they weren't as well-funded as some of the other universities. So what happened was JT Daniels went to West Virginia. Now, I thought it was interesting. It was May 18th that he announced he was going to West Virginia. Less than a month later, he shows up in West Virginia, in Morgantown, at a park. And he is hosting, along with two other players, a free football camp for elementary school and middle school kids. Really cool thing. Seems like it's a great idea. It, it bonds the athletes, the three athletes that were participating, the quarterback, a defensive back, and a lineman to uh, young people in the community. Like, you know, they're fans for life. Uh, but what I found out was that JT Daniels was paid six figures to work what was uh, essentially three hours at the camp. So uh, decide for yourself if that's in the name uh, and spirit or letter of the law when it comes to NIL and booster collectives. But the truth of the matter is I have thought about it numerous times this football season as we watched Oregon State uh, you know, out on the field, really good defense, great defensive back. Uh, they've got, uh, you know, their secondary is ter terrific. Uh, their defense is much improved. Offensive line is good. The running game's good. They got a good running back in Damian Martinez. They've got several good running backs. Uh, uh, you know, Jam Griffin, who also came via the transfer portal to Oregon State. But the position that we all know Oregon State has been deficient at this season is the quarterback position. You know, they could have used a transfer quarterback. And, and I'll, I'll say this knowing that nine of the 12 Pac-12 universities this weekend will start transfers at the quarterback position. Only Oregon State with Ben Gulbrinson, UCLA with Dorian Thompson-Robinson, and Stanford with Tanner McKee will start quarterbacks that entered their universities as true freshmen. The rest are transfers, including uh, Cam Rising at Utah, including Bo Nix at Oregon, including, uh, you know, Caleb Williams at USC and, uh, of course, Michael Penix Jr. at Washington. And Cal will have Jack Plummer at quarterback. He's a transfer from Purdue. So that quarterback position, I think it's kind of the new world 
when we're talking about uh, you know the the construction of a roster. That you know, I've talked with Jonathan Smith about this. I talked with Herm Edwards before he got fired at Arizona State about this. Uh, I've talked to other coaches in the Pac-12 about this. That they all sort of accept that, like ideally, you would want to recruit a freshman quarterback who could come in and play for you. But uh, they're all sort of aware that uh, you know, if you, what you really need is a freshman that you're developing for later, and a transfer who can play right now, like Bo Nix in Oregon comes in from Auburn, and I have thought numerous times and wondered if Oregon State were just a little more advanced, a little more evolved in the NIL space, a little more equipped to uh, go out and rent a house, to uh, hire a personal chef, to come up with a six-figure payout, much in the same way that Washington State paid Cam Ward a $90,000 package. You know, he got a truck, he got airline tickets for his parents, he got some walking around money. Uh, Cam Ward got a pretty good deal at Washington State. If Oregon State's collective had been a little more evolved, would JT Daniels be in uniform at Oregon State, and would Oregon State be sitting right now at one loss? Would they be in the college football playoff hunt, and what is the cost of that? And I kind of wonder that today, and I wondered in print. I went a lot deeper, of course. You can read it at johnconzano.com, but... I had several coaches within the Pac-12 conference reach out to me and said, hey, you are hunting in a space that we are all talking about, that you need a university to have its act together. Uh, as I do this show, I'm sitting inside Research Stadium. I'm looking at, you know, I'm sitting on the west side of the stadium. The construction is rising around me. I mean, this stadium is looking fantastic. So you need kind of the university to have its stuff together. You need the football program to have good coaching, good players, stay healthy, do all that. But the third element now is this NIL collective world where you need a booster collective that is going to be evolved, that is going to be organized, that is going to be well-funded. And Oregon State now has damnation. I love that. Damnation is... Uh, you know, organized itself. They announced it yesterday morning. I didn't like that they announced it at 10 a.m. on a Thursday morning. I think that's that's kind of bad strategy. You don't get maximum impact. I think they should have gone earlier in the week. You know, you get lost in the shuffle of the college football games on Thursday and Friday, but here we are talking about it. And Oregon State's got its collective, and I think, you know, even though the university is not supposed to have a hand in it, um, you know, I think the university is probably thrilled that they have – a booster collective that is operating on its behalf, not just to maybe go out and, uh, you know, uh, be uh, able to have conversations with prospective transfers who say, hey, if I transfer in, what kind of uh, infrastructure is available to me in the NIL world? But also, let's talk retention for a minute. I talked to the Washington State Cougar Collective on this show a few months ago, and you you know, essentially, their whole thing is they want to reward players at Washington State for staying at Washington State. They don't want to be a stepping stone. They don't want to be a feeder program. Oregon State, very much interested in that same conversation. I don't think Oregon has ever really worried too much about that, and I don't think they have to because of kind of the space they play in and where they recruit. But I, I certainly think there's some turnover at Oregon, and we saw, uh, you know, a, a guy like Travis Dye, Running back, you know, jump from Oregon, most productive offensive player from a year ago, to USC. And when you lose a player like that, if you're Oregon, it's not just the loss in your own backfield that matters. It is 
you're losing a player, and guess what? Somebody who could meet you in the conference championship game is getting a player. So it's something we're thinking about. I think it turns a lot of people off. I know I'm not totally comfortable with it, but it is the world we live in. It is the space that the coaches in major college football play in. And I think Oregon State took a big step forward by adding damnation, the uh, collective that will uh, now seemingly work on its behalf. And I think if this had happened a year earlier, there's a chance that JT Daniels is in uniform at Oregon State. Instead, he's at, he's at West Virginia. And, uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, while he's not a superstar by college standards, he would be an upgrade over, I think, what Oregon State has suited up this season. And I think Oregon State might be in a better position. It's just something to think about as we go forward. We got our picks. We'll talk about our picks for the Pac-12 games on today's show. You'll hear uh, a variety of stories, uh, including some from Rich Brooks, the former University of Oregon football coach. We'll visit with the Former president of the Duck Club, Dick Allen's going to be joining us. He's got stories for days about Washington and Oregon and the rivalry. We'll also visit with uh, Dick Oldfield, who is a former Nike executive, and guess what? He's a co-founder of Damn Nation, the NIL collective at Oregon State. We'll visit with him coming up later this hour. The Big Splash, what's your peeve? And also, what's on tap? We have so much to get to on today's show. We're going to keep it moving. Uh, up next, though, you'll hear some stories. Rich Brooks talking about the first time he beat Washington. And, by the way, Kenny Wheaton's going to score. We all think of that as a pivot point for Oregon football. You know what uh, Rich Brooks says? He says there was a lot more to that Kenny Wheaton pick back in the day than just the pick. You'll hear it in his words coming up. I want you to leave it here. I'm broadcasting from Research Stadium today where Cal and Oregon State will be playing tomorrow. And uh, just about 44 miles from here, it'll be Washington and Oregon in a rivalry game. We are in the thick of it with college football, and I've got you covered today. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano. Peter Sampson is up next with The Pulse from 6 to 7 on 750 The Game. J.T. Daniels wanted a private chef, a four-bedroom house, six-figure endorsement. I can't say I blame his dad, but there might be some tentacles that come with those kinds of promises. Judah Newbie, Stephen, what do you guys, you know, any anybody want to pump the brakes on NIL collectives or where are the concerns here, the pitfalls? Yeah, I think it is a slippery slope. Um, you know, I, I was always one that, it wasn't that I thought that the athletes shouldn't get paid. Like, they should get something, and they do. They get stipends. They get things like that. Maybe the stipends should be more. But now that they're getting paid, you know, in the six, the seven figures, and it's doing it in a weird way, like you said. Yeah. You know, a, a, a little kid camp where he works a couple hours, he's getting six figures. I mean, that's a little shady, I think. Like, <laughs> like it's just a slippery slope. Like, all this stuff was happening before. There was always the $100 handshakes, but now it's just out in the open. Um, You know. It's it's just weird. It's weird, but you know, in the world of college football, you have to have these type of groups and collectives to you know help the athletes do this, and that's how you're going to be competitive. I mean, you talked about all the transfers in the Pac-12 at quarterback. It's not just the Pac-12; it's everywhere. Like there are transfers everywhere that are starting and thriving. So if you're Oregon State, like you know, you don't you already don't get the best recruiting classes because it's in Corvallis. The way you can compete is by that transfer portal. With that out there now. So I think this is a good first step for them. So I think it's good for them. But in the grand scheme of college football, college of athlete, athletics, I don't necessarily like it. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't think that all transfers are created equal and not all transfers have the p 
personality of JT Daniels. And what I mean by that is clearly JT prioritized cash. You know, like he wanted that and everything was subservient to that. So I'm not sure he was ever that close to being a beaver because yeah. clearly they couldn't rival what Morgantown ended up paying for him. I, I wondered about that. I wondered if he just showed up to that spring practice at Oregon State to uh, create some leverage against West Virginia. I think that's I think that's right. And, you know, so if you're the Beavers, I guess my question is, like, at what point, you know, are you prioritizing your culture or are you prior- prioritizing talent? And they don't have to be, you know, diametrically opposed, but I think JT Daniels would have been the wrong Beaver, right? Like, just – and that – Exemplified by the fact that he, his priorities were clearly not in like the the typical place that a college athlete would um, would probably have their priority. Like he cares a lot more than just about ball. And I yeah. think the a good quarterback of the Oregon State Beavers, you know, probably should be more the guy that cares more about ball than he cares about the other stuff. The whole, oh, yeah, go ahead. The whole NIL thing is just so crazy too because it's brought up the transfer portal. Like uh, the Wisconsin running back Braylon Allen. He's a really good player, sophomore. Um, there's rumors now that USC and Michigan are actively recruiting him, which is obviously against the rules. But they have more money to give out than Wisconsin. We've seen USC go in the transfer portal before, so like they're just going out and actively recruiting him. It's just a weird. It's a weird dynamic that you have to be a part of if you want to be in the college football game. But it's just like, man, it's a little, a little sketchy, man. Apparently, JT Daniels' dad kept saying, I, "My kid needs to be comfortable." And I think there's part of this, too. Like, he's not going to be that great a pro. He might not be a pro. And there may be some incentive right now from his family, his dad seems to be driving that conversation, to cash in now. He might be able to make more money now as a college player than maybe an NFL player. Like, there may not be an NFL career for him. I mean, he may not be that good. He may not make a roster. But he's got six-figure value now as a college player. It's really interesting to me because I – I, I'm torn because I think I get what his family's doing. They're saying, hey, this is the system. We've got some value. We want to make sure we get the best deal, and they're doing it as a we thing. And I also, Judah, I agree with you in theory that you want guys that are there for the right reasons. It it should be pointed out that JT Daniels was not having these conversations. His dad was, you know, and that may have been by design because they want to create kind of a separation of the business and, and the football. But I also think, like, you know, Michael Penix Jr. to Washington, you know, Cam Ward to Washington State, uh, Caleb Williams to USC, Bo Nix to Oregon. Like, we don't know what Bo Nix got yet. Uh, I'm assuming Bo Nix got something. Yeah, but at least those guys, all of those guys had previous relationships with the offensive coordinators and play callers, right? DeBoer knew Penix from Indiana, Dillingham knew Nix from Auburn, and obviously Morris and Ward knew each other. Like, JT Daniels would have had no prior connection to the Beavers and those those ones that come down just to price like that mm-hmm. that bothers me a little bit. I'm curious to see where this all goes, but I think Oregon State. We'll talk to the one of the co-founders of the Damn Nation Collective coming up uh, in about uh, six minutes from now. Uh, I want to play a clip here. You guys remember this? Ewer, you're going to go back to throw the ball. Sets up, looks, throws toward the corner of the end zone. It is intercepted. Intercepted. The Ducks have the ball. Down to the 35, the 40. Kenny Wayne's going to score. Kenny Wayne is going to score. Play the damn touchdown. Kenny Wayne on the interception. The most improbable finish to the football game. Kenny Wheaton scored on the play. Uh, Nick Aliotti, the 
former Oregon D coordinator, talked about it yesterday. I had a conversation along with John Wilner with Rich Brooks, the Oregon head coach at that time, about Kenny Wheaton and about what it meant to beat Washington at that time. Rich Brooks got his first win over Washington uh, several years into his tenure. Washington had dominated the Ducks. Brooks joined us for a conversation. I want to play a couple minutes uh, of that talk just to kind of give you some context on what the Washington-Oregon rivalry is about. Coach, when I look back at kind of your tenure and I line it up with Washington, I want to talk about that 1980 game a little bit. You know, you, you get your first win against Washington. They were ranked when you played them. I think they were 13th. You beat them 34-10. to 10. But uh, I'm sure that doesn't tell all the story. What did that mean to you to 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 beat Washington finally as a head coach? It, it was huge. Uh, it was absolutely huge. Uh, I'll never forget the feeling, uh, you know, because and the dreadful and, and and our fan base felt the same way, and that's why the Kenny Wheaton pick is remembered so strongly because uh, the Huskies would always have a way of snatching victory away from us. Even though we were playing well, we were ahead, we were winning the game. Uh, and, and in that game in Seattle, uh, we were up and and they had the ball and Steve Brown makes a pick and runs it in for a pick six touchdown to seal it, I think, to make it like 34 to 21 or something like that. But there was always that feeling until that interception happened that they could come back and beat us because they had done it so many times in, in the past. And I think the, sa the same thing with the Kenny Wheaton interception. Nobody remembers the drive before the Kenny Wheaton interception, but we got the ball on the two-yard line in 1994, mishandled a punt or a kickoff, and we downed it on the thought – the returner thought he was in the end zone and put his knee down. And we drive 98 yards for a touchdown, uh, and, and we run it in with the fullback. Dwayne runs it in uh, for a 12-yard touchdown. And, and everybody would remember the drive if we'd have stopped them on fourth down the two times we had a chance going into the pick on the nine-yard line. But everybody remembers the pick, and so do I. But the drive was impressive, too, because the Huskies had taken the, taken the lead, and we made a 98-yard drive to take the lead back from them. Uh, and it's just, there's just so many emotional swings in a football game. And I, uh, you know, I can remember another game in Austin stadium where we had them beat and we punted the ball away late in the game with less than two minutes left and boom, punt return for a touchdown and we lose and we kicked their fanny the whole day <laughs> and we end up losing. Uh, another game uh, up in uh, in Seattle, uh, we had three freshmen starting on defense. We hold the Huskies to 111 yards total offense, and we lose the game. And they end up number one in the nation that year. Split split vote, but they were uh, I think number one in either the AP or the one of the polls and it was it was extremely frustrating to go through those type of games uh and and in in that game in seattle when we held them uh to just just over 100 yards of total offense we kicked them up and down the field 
they blocked the punt for a touchdown and ran one back for a touchdown. And that really gets under my skin because I'm a big special teams guy. So they, they did a great job in all phases of the game and, and they snatched victory away from us on many occasions in my 18 years. Did you guys know what was coming on the Kenny Wheaton pick? Kenny Wheaton knew what was coming because he studied film and he knew in that formation, that slot, uh, that, that guy, they like to run the out to him. And he just, he read it and stepped in front and made the play. Now I'll tell you, it still baffles me to this day that, uh, with the guy they had in the backfield, I don't know why they didn't hand it off because they had time. Uh, but that was a, a fantastic play by a guy who, had done his homework and studying the film. And he did that a lot on his own. He'd take film home at night and look at it. And he, he was just a, a freshman at the time. Was it clear to you? There is Rich Brooks, the former Oregon coach, talking about Kenny Wheaton and the Oregon-Washington rivalry. If you want to hear that full interview, it's about 45 minutes. Uh, grab the Konzano and Wilner podcast on uh, iTunes or wherever you find a podcast. Up next, we're going to talk to one of the co-founders of the Damnation Collective, Dick Oldfield, former Nike executive. He's in on it with uh, Oregon State Athletics. He is, uh, you know, one of the brainchilds of this thing. What do they aim to do? Uh, is it about retention? Is it about keeping pace? Is it about not being left behind for Oregon State? We'll talk about it next. Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Well, I wrote about it this morning. I wrote about Damnation this morning. Damnationcollective.com if you are an Oregon State fan who wants to commit to Damnation or join the Damn Fam, uh, you can do you could do it there. Uh, our next guest is a retired Nike executive who spent 36 years in the footwear industry. Uh, Dick Oldfield is a uh, strategy guy. He's a thinker. He is a uh, former Oregon State track and field runner. I think he ran like the 1500. He's a distance runner, and he's joining us now. Dick, what uh, what's your 1500 time right now? <laughs> that's a that's a tough opening question, Mike. <laughs> My 1,500-meter time right now, John, is the time that I told people 10 years ago, if I'm ever running that slow, just knock me off the road and, <laughs> and leave me in the ditch. So I'm still <laughs> running. I'm still running. You, you're doing it. Hey, look, uh, you, uh, you're an Oregon State guy. You're, your wife, your kids, your daughter-in-law, all Oregon State grads. I mean, you obviously, you live it, you love it. Um, what made you want to? get into this collective NIL space, and uh, you are one of the co-founders of Damn Nation. Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks for having me on today. Uh, you know what? I think I think we just saw that uh, there's an opportunity here to, to come in and create a collective and, and uh, really serve kind of all athletes and all sports at Oregon State. We know that uh, nil is not going to go away, and it's going to be here for for a long time. And while it's a little bit of a wild wild west right now, I think there's um, there's a lot of opportunities for for student athletes out there. And so we we saw it as a great way to not only come in and and uh, offer up um, 
you know, our collective to student athletes at Oregon State, but but also kind of hopefully do it the the right way. And, and you know, by that we see uh, opportunities to kind of help them build their story, help them see where they want to be when they're competitive or and OSU days are are over with, so that you know they're helping to build their future. You know, you say the right way. Um, you know, I, I think we're all a little bit nervous with where this has gone and kind of the, you know, the transfer portal NIL world feels a little bit like free agency. What do you mean by the right way? And, uh, you know, what do you guys talk about when it comes to strategy on that front? Well, again, I think, you know, our, our goal is to uh, work with student athletes to help them kind of uh, plan for their future, get to know them, figure out, you know, what, what are they majoring in? What are their interests? What are their, what do they want to do beyond so that uh, we can, you know, hopefully find some uh, good uh, opportunities for them where they are learning about life beyond college athletics and beyond Oregon State, if it's finance, if it's starting their own business down the road, you know, I know, you see lots of uh, athletes that are, you know, having their own T-shirt business or things like that. And, and so, uh, you know, we, we want to hopefully help them prepare for the future. Our guest, Dick Oldfield, uh, former Nike executive, uh, one of the co-founders of the NIL collective at Oregon State, the new one. It's called Damn Nation. Um, some of the other collectives, like Arizona State has got an interesting strategy. They are... They're offering smaller recurring donations from donors. They're trying to capture on the numbers they have with huge alumni base. What are you guys doing to raise money, and, and how would Oregon State fans who are listening to this get involved? Yeah, thanks for asking that. Um, you, you know, we, we do uh, have some potential bigger investors um, that, that uh, we might work with, but really if, when you think of Beaver Nation, when you think of – uh, the community around Corvallis, when you think of even, you know, parts of our website where we say damn fam, I mean, Oregon State is kind of built on the collective, the family, um, the, the fan base, et cetera. And so we do have uh, we do have opportunities right on our sites where you can commit to damn nation collective right away and, and invest in some uh, money to help, uh, help provide some opportunities for these student athletes. So we, we don't, we don't see it as, one big uh, investment coming through, but really a, a lot of people getting involved and, and being a part of it. What'd you learn at Nike that maybe you bring into this project? Yeah, that, that's a that's a great question, and it, you know what 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 I learned in 36 years uh, is to think big and to and to take risks sometimes, and you know I think. Anybody that, you know, has peeked behind the curtain at Nike, a lot of people see Nike as a, as a huge company now, but back in the early days, I mean, they took, you know, risks all the time to try to try to think big and, and get, to the, get to the bigger prize out there and instead of settling for something maybe a little more attainable or doable or things like that. So, um, you know, I, I think uh, conservative people um, – maybe don't survive or maybe get a little frustrated at Nike, but uh, I, I learned some big lessons there, starting at the top with Phil Knight himself. Yeah, I think it's fantastic uh, strategy. I mean, you know, I like sports teams and athletes that dream big or make plans that make them sort of stretch beyond their reach. And, uh, you know, it feels like uh, we're in that space in college athletics right now. Um, you know, one of the things I thought about with the launch of this is it's, 
you know, we always think about transfer portal and, you know, the uh, the ability maybe for new players coming into Oregon State to capitalize on name, image, likeness. But some of the entities, uh, some of the ambition just may be about retention. You've got some great players here. You don't want to become a stepping stone uh, that becomes a feeder program for, our, for you know, for the others. Um, how much will you balance, you know, retention of existing players versus, you know, the opportunities maybe that incoming players uh, could expect to enjoy? Yeah, you know, it, it is really, uh, John, you hit it on the head. It, it is really about retention more than recruiting. I mean, you know, you want well, kind of the, the third-headed deal out there with, hey, you get you can get a great education at Oregon State. You're going to have a great experience with great coaches and, you know, improve, which a lot of athletes want to do, improve in your skills uh, on the field or on the court um, or on the mat. But, but um, you want to you want to stay there, and we hope you do stay there for the duration of your uh, of your time at OSU. So uh, we will spend time helping these athletes kind of again further themselves and grow off the field in hopes that they want to stay at Oregon State for their whole time. We're talking to Dick Oldfield. He is a, a former Nike executive and one of the co-founders of Oregon State's NIL collective, Damn Nation. I'm broadcasting today, Dick, from inside Research Stadium. You know, the west side of the stadium's going up, and looks like the Love construction's it. coming along. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of an exciting time with Jonathan Smith here. How will the collective fit with a football coaching staff? Because I think on one hand, like, there's supposed to be a separation of church and state, but can there be conversations, or what kind of conversations can you have within the rules with the coaching staff in, in the university? Well, you know, a, a, a collective has to be a separate entity from Oregon State, and so, you know, we're, we're not having official meetings to sit down and, and earmark, things like that. But um, I, I think, you know, if you're a fan, if you're part of a collective, you're going to be forming relationships hopefully hopefully with these athletes that we want to reach out to whether they reach out to us or we reach out to them or business reaches out to them and so we want to be able to grow in those relationships and and along with that comes uh you know building relationships uh with with coaches unofficially i think at a, at a campus you can't do things on an official standpoint but Corvallis is a small town and you're going to bump into people that way the uh, you know the ambassadors that you have, Michaela Pivik. We've had her on the show before. Um, you got Stephen Jackson in the fold, and and yeah. others. You know how will those personalities operate within within the collective, or maybe in in conjunction with some of the athletes? Yeah, I, I think first and foremost, uh, when we talk to each of these prospective ambassadors before they came on board, it was. It, you know, it's about them kind of believing in the mission and, and kind of going beyond and helping these student athletes prepare for the future. And so, one by one, these ambassadors, as, as they've come on board, have um, have said, "Hey, you know, if, if if we can help by talking to a student athlete, by showing the way that we went, um, by by offering up uh, advice at different times." I mean, every one of the ambassadors has come forward and said and said that. So it's not like a not like a regular job or role that they will have, but um, but they are uh, there to help along the way when needed. Um, the reaction that you got, the reception. I know that you know this is we're, you're just you know 24 hours into this thing, but um, <laughs> yeah. 
are, are you getting uh, inquiries you didn't expect? Or what kind of conversations are you having? What's been the reaction of the reception so far? Reaction has been great so far. I think we're getting a lot of positive reactions. I, I think uh, for some people, it is you know, there's a lot of people that are just still learning about what NIL means and what it's all about, and so. I think some of those people who haven't even thought about it for a while by our announcement yesterday and, and kicking in and interviews like this with you, I think it, it's, it's stirring up a lot of um, questions and, and better yet, education for people out there just to learn about, hey, what, what does it mean? What's it all about? And, and then beyond that, you know, how can we invest to help out? So um, there's, a, there's a lot to learn still for everybody out there, but, um, but it's been a really good reaction so far. Um, you know, I think it's uh, it's really neat that you guys are doing this. I think uh, I know uh, the university's got to be thrilled that you know you're putting the energy and effort into this. But for people who want to get involved, is it as simple as going to damnnationcollective.com? Is is that the first step? It's that yeah, it's that easy. Yeah, and it should be a pretty easy website to navigate. You can find uh, multiple buttons, as you can imagine, that that say commit to damnation and. You can read it over and then get in, get involved. Get involved. All right. I appreciate you making time, Dick, and uh, good luck to you. Thank you. Uh, we'll get you back on yeah. after you get some momentum just to kind of get an update on yeah. it. But, you know, Arizona State, Washington State, and some others have come on the show to kind of talk about what they're doing. I mean, they're, they're, uh, Arizona right. State in particular is just trying to play the numbers game, and I get it. Like, they have a huge enrollment, and so they've got more alumni, so they're just going, hey, if everyone gives 50 yeah. bucks – you know, you're, you've got something. They raised a million dollars in like a week and just doing that. And I think it was just a phenomenal effort by them to get out. And Washington State's a little different. Washington State's trying to play a little more, hey, we want to retain our athletes. We want it to be more about relationships. So I'll be interested to see where you guys end up on that spectrum. Yeah, yeah, no, I appreciate it. I think I think there's a great opportunity for multiple members, like you say, more, more like an Arizona State to get involved. But I, I appreciate you having us on and – you know, the proof is is in uh, what happens down the road, so we look forward to catching up with you down the road. Dick Oldfield, thank you. There it is, uh, damnnationcollective.com if you want to get some info on it. I wrote all about why it's important today. You know, I don't think we all need to be comfortable with what's happening across the landscape, but I think we need to know what's happening across the landscape. I wrote about it, uh, and I hope you check that out. Uh, you can read it and link to it, too, at johnconzano.com. Uh, coming up, our big splash, and then later in the show, it's going to be story time. I I was going to hold that guest that we have on later in the show for uh, later in the season, maybe uh, Oregon-Oregon State Rivalry Week, but Dick Allen, former president of the Duck Club, is going to join us to talk about why the Oregon and Washington fan bases hate each other. I don't use that term lightly. They don't like each other. He'll join us in the 5 o'clock hour. Leave it here. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I'm broadcasting today from Reeser Stadium where they are uh, completing Reeser. The west side of the stadium being completed. The capacity of Reeser Stadium after the renovation. Do you guys know what the capacity will be? I have the number. I have no know? idea. What's your guess? What's your ballpark guess on the capacity of Reeser Stadium after the West Side renovation? 
You got to guess, Judah? So I think uh, so. Autzen's 54, I want to say, so I'm going to go uh, 56. Try not to outdo Autzen. Do Autzen. Mm, 56? What do you think, Stephen? Uh, I'll go less. I'll go uh, 50. How about 36,000? Mm, wait, what? 36,000. They're going smaller. They're downsizing. Oh, I may have forgotten about that part. Yeah, because it's 27 now. <laughs> it's going to be – it's 27 now and change – and then the new side is not only downsizing, but they're going heavy with premium seating, living room seating, club boxes. They wouldn't even tell me what the boxes cost. Apparently, uh, they're so they're so lucrative, I can't afford them. So that like they wouldn't even tell me. Like I said, what are those costs? And they were like, we don't, uh, don't want to make you feel bad. Uh, like you know, they wouldn't even give me an answer. Don't worry about it. Yeah, yeah, We have a collective. <laughs> I have a feeling that. The because uh, because what I did is I we bought season tickets at Autzen and we bought season tickets at Reeser and we give them away. But uh, I have a feeling they did not want me to give up my season tickets on the east side and move west, because I think the west side is going to be a lot of donors who are making uh, big donations to the athletic department and buying those living room boxes. And apparently it's supposed to be like Beaver Street is what they got, and I, that's where I'm sitting. Like I walked out the back of the radio broadcast today, and I could see. It's really coming together. Like, it really looks like a concourse now. And it's got tunnels, and it's got, like, the infrastructure. And I I can see what's going to happen here. It's going to be really cool with, like, sort of open air. You could, you're going to be able to be, like, standing at the concession stand and see the field because the sight line is going to be open. And it's very open, open, open with, like, living room seating and boxes all in front and uh, and they did a smart thing. It looks like the upper grandstand's got a cover on it, so you're going to be covered seating as well. So I think they're downsizing, but I bet you they're going to charge a little more for these seats, and that's where they're going to make their money. And it could make it louder, correct? Just because it would oh, be it's more, already louder. Yeah, and you know more people in there, and it's you know higher. Like you said, it'd be more of a um, a rare ticket to get. Like you got to really want to go there. That was kind of my theory, which it was like instead of a 34,000 crowd that's like half interested, half paying attention, you've got intensely devoted people getting a ticket now yeah. that are going to bring the noise. And even more so, I think, next year as it, uh, you know, as it gets big, it's going to be ready by next year, right? That's yeah, the it'll idea. open open uh, for 2023 in the early part of the season. So you got UC September Davis. of 2023 will be the opener. UC Davis is week two, September 9th. They're on the road at San Jose, at San Jose State week one at Brent Brennan, apparently. And then uh, hosting UC Davis on the ninth will, I guess, allegedly be the opener. Then there the you home go. opener, yeah. That should be the home opener for Oregon State, and should be pretty fun to be inside this stadium and uh, sort of see all of that and see that unfold before our very eyes. But uh, uh, really interesting to see what they're doing here, uh, and a lot of fun. Meanwhile, at Autzen Stadium, um, you know, years ago I talked to Rob Mullins about Autzen because there was a demand at Autzen. You know, they had a lot of games in the Chip Kelly era that didn't have tickets. It was standing room only. And so there was some talk about expanding, expanding, expanding. But then we kind of just hit a we hit a point where people, because of kickoff times, because of the cost of tickets, because of the improvements in television, I think there, we, the market started to get some resistance. And at the SEC saw it, the Big Ten saw it, certainly the Pac-12 saw it. And all of a sudden, you know, this season, they're having trouble selling out Autzen Stadium. And, you know, they'll get the Washington game. They'll get... They'll get big games in the future, 
But I don't think it's as easy to sell out a 54,000-seat stadium in in Eugene, Oregon, as it was. Even if Chip Kelly and the Ducks were happening in this era, I think that the late kickoffs and the lure, the uh, competition from your living room, would be a real thing. And then, and then you know, even the SEC. I talked to Greg Sankey about this, the SEC commissioner. They were seeing problems with games that they had sold out historically were now not selling out all anymore. And there was, you know, there may be some downsizing going on throughout college football. What do you guys think the biggest factor is when it comes to whether or not people buy a season ticket? Um, I think the biggest factor is just the at-home product. Like, it's it's so good if you have your own nice setup at home. Like, you don't need to be there, right? Like, it's so much more comfortable. Yeah. I think we need to get another year, two, three away from the pandemic as well and just, yeah. like, really make grease the wheels again of what it was like to hang out and tailgate with everybody from start to finish, right? Like <laughs> get back to the 2015, 2016 vibes of that was the way you spent your Saturday, right? The holistic way you spent your Saturday was at the stadium. Uh, if they can get that feeling back in some of these programs, I think the numbers would return. Another thing too, is just the lives of people in youth sports. You know, it became, you know, college sports is sold out to television, so all the kickoff times and everything is predicated around TV schedule and making it right for TV, and you know, that wasn't conducive for fans being inside the stadium always. But we also we also have lives that are increasingly busy with kids that are playing youth sports in a youth sports industry that is um, asking us to spend, you know, not just – it used to be, for me, it was like one Little League game or a soccer game, and then my parents were off for the rest of the day. No, it's like five, six-hour commitments. It's all day. It's weekend travel tournaments. It's club sports. And so all of a sudden, I think families' lives, the life of the typical family that was a season ticket holder, is more complicated than it was uh, 10 or 20 years ago when the youth sports scene wasn't pulling, 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 demanding, demanding, demanding. More time, more of your disposable income. Oh, by the way, it's going to cost you $4,000 to play soccer this club season, and you're going to have to travel and rent a car, and you're going to have to get on a plane, and and all of a sudden, people were like, eh, maybe we don't buy season tickets this year. Uh, let's uh, go into the hour number two. We have Punch It Audio coming up uh, later in the show. It's story time. Uh, all that's still ahead. You got the bald face truth statewide. BFFT. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald face truth. Ticket at Autzen Stadium tomorrow as Washington is visiting Oregon. It's also a hot ticket at uh, Racer Stadium, where I am broadcasting today as Cal is coming to town. It is Parents Weekend at Oregon State, and tickets are few and far between in a stadium that is holding 27,000 plus. I'll be interested to see uh, how many points Cal can score against Oregon State's defense. I'm thinking the same thing about Washington. We're going to go back through our picks for the week uh, coming up in a little bit in this uh, in this hour. We'll talk about uh, what it is that uh, we're looking for over the weekend. And, and we're all going to give one team, one underdog. All the road teams are dogs this week in the Pac-12. Home favorites are running wild. 
By the way, home favorites this year in the Pac-12 are 37 and one. Home favorites have won 37 out of 38 games in the Pac-12 this, this season. It is uh, the most dominant season by home teams in the history of the Pac-12 to this point. At no other juncture has the win percentage by home favorites been larger than it is this season. We're going to get into why we think that is. We're going to pick one underdog that could be an outlier this week, one visiting team that could win. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the home field advantages in the Pac-12 conference. Where are the biggest home field advantages? I, uh, earlier this week, kind of flippantly made a remark, and this is how I really feel. I think the best home field advantage in the Pac-12 is Rice-Eccles Stadium in Utah. I've been to all the stadiums. Rice-Eccles Stadium, there's, it's the fans, it's loud, it's an uncomfortable place for teams to play. Statistically, uh, Utah plays better at home than it does on the road. Uh, you know, even better than most home teams. Uh, and uh, and I'm not talking about win percentage. I'm talking about differential in a season. When you talk about point differential, when you talk about the defense playing better, there's just something about Utah at home. And, uh, you know, after that, though, the next two best home field advantages in the Pac-12 belong in the state of Oregon. It's Oregon State and it's Oregon. And I've asked, I've reached out to some bookmakers and I don't have all the data yet, but I've asked the bookmakers because I'm trying to quantify when they are setting a line on a game like Oregon-Washington or a game like Oregon State-Cal. If the game were at a neutral site, if the game were being played on the road instead of in the state of Oregon, how different would those lines be? Because we generally think about the home field advantage being three points, uh, I'm finding out it's more like 7 to 10 points in the Pac-12 conference, and, it, and it's closer to 10 in places like Utah, in Corvallis, and in Eugene. So why is that? Why are the best home field advantages, two of the best three, in the state of Oregon? And by the way, Oregon fan, don't get mad at me. Look, I'm just telling you that Oregon State is quantifiably better at Reeser Stadium in the last two years than they are on the road. And, you know, Oregon goes on the road and wins. Oregon at home wins. Oregon doesn't lose at Autzen Stadium. But Oregon State is better, much better at home than they are on the road. Why is that? You know, I've asked the players. They don't seem to have a good answer. I've asked Jonathan Smith. He doesn't seem to have a great answer. So we're going to drill down on that. But first, we're going to play some punch and audio. We got the best sound from all around. We're going to go around the world of sports. We're going to do it here. Let it rip. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Fish Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio, presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Danny Connell, is he spitting the truth for CBS Sports? I don't think so. Here he is talking about Washington, Oregon. Ducks a 13 to 13 and a half point favorite at home against Washington. Danny Cannell likes the Huskies and the points. Punch it. Oregon has covered the spread four weeks in a row. They haven't had five weeks in a row since 2015. I don't think they match that. I'm with you on Washington. I Michael Penix is playing great. 
he's flourishing in this offense. I think they'll be able to light up this Oregon Ducks defense. And even though Bo Nix has played fantastic, been phenomenal, there's still a couple times, even the game, what was it, we had three interceptions and he still had four touchdowns. Yep. He, there's, there's always kind of the threat of the Bo Nix that's a little bit of a roller coaster ride. And we haven't seen it. I wonder if it comes out in this game. I think Oregon wins, but I think Washington keeps it close. I think this is more of a 7-10 to 10 point type of game. I don't think so, Danny Cannell. I like the Ducks big. I don't think Washington's going to be able to stop Oregon. I think Oregon will score 45 to 55 points. I put them down for 48. I wouldn't be surprised if they got a 50-burger on Washington. It just depends. Uh, you know, what will Kenny Dillingham do here? This spread is, is moving, though. It started out at 13, went to 13 and a half. It's now sitting at 12 and a half, and I like it better. The Ducks minus 12 and a half. That feels like a bargain to me. I think they're going to blow Washington out. Dave Softy Mahler doesn't agree, but he's the biggest honk in the world when it comes to Washington. He joined me on yesterday's show, and he gave the keys to a Washington win. Punch it. First of all, uh, like I said, I think UW's going to have to move the ball through the air with, with great efficiency, by the way. And I'm not even talking about just hitting post routes and go routes and bombs the entire day. I'm talking about nickel and diming Oregon's defensive secondary to death with six or seven minute drives that keep Bo Nix on the sideline. Number two, I also think you got to force some turnovers inside their own end. All right, give the offense a break, and that's a, a bit of a problem right now because UW. Well, technically they had a turnover on the lateral, the final play of the Oregon State game, but outside of that, they have not forced a turnover since the fourth quarter of the Arizona State game 12 quarters ago. So their defense has got to start taking away the football. And, John, i got to be honest with you, I'm not saying UW's going to win this game. I'm not saying that Washington's going to shut down Oregon's offense. But I think their defense is playing the best football right now that they've played all year long because they're the healthiest. Last week was the first time all year that they were able to start all four of their defensive backs together since week one. We're talking Powell. We're talking Perryman. We're talking Alex Cook and Asa Turner. Those guys have all been banged up at different points throughout the year. Now you're getting Olafosio back, who by far is their best linebacker. God, it sucked to not have him up until last week. He hasn't played since last October, and he finally came back and played last week. So getting 48 back and getting that secondary healthy. Now you're seeing Braylon Trice, number eight, Jeremiah Martin, number three, uh, DTF, are starting to take off and get some pressure on the quarterbacks. There's Dave Softy Mahler. It sounds like a bunch of excuses to me. Look, I think Oregon wins this game. I love the fact that the spread has dropped from 13.5 down to 12.5. If you're an Oregon fan, uh, I think you got to feel good about this. I think Oregon's going to score a whole bunch of points, and I don't think Washington can stay with them. Moving on, uh, let's talk about uh, Joe Thomas. He is talking about the hire of Jeff Saturday by the uh, Indianapolis Colts, Robert Ursay, hiring a former player who uh, he's pals with to be his coach. Joe Thomas says it's disrespectful. Punch it. When you hire your drinking buddy to be the head coach of an NFL football team, it is one of the most disrespectful things I've ever seen in my entire life to the commitment, the lifestyle, and the experience that it takes to be an NFL coach, any coach, much less the head coach of the Indianapolis football Colts. You have got to be kidding me that this is something that Jim Ursay and Jeff Saturday, who's not blameless for accepting the job, could have talked and decided that this was the best thing for the Indianapolis Colts at this juncture of the season. 
Yeah, look, I disagree. It's Robert Ursay's team. If he wants to have them wear pink shoes, he can do that. If he wants to have them run backwards onto the field, he can do that. If he wants to hire Jeff Saturday to be his coach, interim coach, I don't mind it because think about it. A lot of pro sports owners will hire a consultant to come in. They'll pay them six figures to tell them what's wrong with the team or what to do with the team. Like, are the people, are the critics of this hire missing the point? The point is... Robert Ursay is hiring somebody he trusts to come in and coach this team. And then what? Give him feedback and say, look, I think we need to do X, Y, Z. Here's what I see in the locker room. I was here four, five, six weeks. Here's what I picked up. Here's what I learned. I think this is incredibly valuable, and I think it's smart. And I also think, look, if Robert Ursay wants to hire you know, his neighbor, his brother-in-law, to come in and Give him some opinions on the team. It's his team. Let him do it. Let him do it. Blazers are fun. They won again yesterday. I'm going to play this clip. Uh, you know, if you are a Blazer fan, you have to be liking what you're getting from the Blazers. Punch it. Good playmaking, big man. Hands off here to Grant. He's got Williamson in his sights. Crosses him oh between the wickets. Oh. In the oh. Oh, right down Bourbon Street with a hurricane. Look at this handle. Uh, oh, he skated him. He skated him good. Oh, my goodness. We've seen a lot from Jeremy. We haven't seen this yet. Oh, that's special. We got the whole bench up. Watch the bench in the background, and you can't see it on this angle. Oh, man. Jeremy Grant with a monster duck. Blazers won again yesterday. Some uh, sobering news, though, today. The Blazers announced that Shaden Sharp has a fracture to his right fifth finger. What's your fifth finger, guys? Help me with that. I don't Which know. One? I was hoping you knew. <laughs> <laughs> right fifth finger. Is, that, is it your pinky? Well, you only have five fingers in theory on each hand. 20% chance to guess this right, Judah. <laughs> I'm going ring finger. It, but that wouldn't be... Wouldn't they just say ring finger? But how is that the fifth finger in any know. sense of the... It, it's got to no be idea. your pinky. Middle finger? Fifth finger? Because the thumb is the big guy. Like, that, that's that's the number one, right? The thumb is still a finger, isn't it? I'm do, I'm Googling fifth finger. Or is it a toe? The fifth finger is the pinky, guys. Why don't they just say the baby finger? Yeah. How about they... Why don't they just say wee, wee, wee? That one went all the way home. I would love that in a press release. <laughs> They should say the right fifth finger went wee, wee, wee. <laughs> it's day to day. It does sound more <laughs> professional to say it's the fifth finger, though. <laughs> I'm going to use that. Next time you hurt your pinky, don't call it a pinky, guys. Tell your significant other, my fifth finger, man, really bothering me. It's got an avulsion. What is, uh, look... I kind of feel like I'm to blame for this because I tweeted out last night, gosh, these Blazers are fun. This is the first – I've been waiting because I know the minute that I give them credit and I go, hey, man, they are great. This has been a blessing. You know, what a pleasant surprise they are. The minute I say that, they're going to lose three in a row, okay? And I tweet out, they've been a pleasant surprise this morning, not surprised to see that the uh, pinky finger, the baby finger is – 
not good on Shaden Sharp's hand. This is not supposed to end his season. It's just supposed to maybe possibly keep him out a little bit. But, uh, you know, I, I just I think this is what we asked for. Steven, we asked for it, and we're getting what we asked for. Yeah, we Just asked, be interesting. Yeah, we asked for them to be fun and interesting, and they are. They're competitive. They play hard every night. They've gotten some big wins against good teams without their best players. You know, Dame and Nurk have missed a few games, and they've won. Uh, you know, nine and three start, John, and they've only been favored in two games. So, I mean, great start. It's still early. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm still, you know, I, st- I believe a lot more now than I did before. I think this team can compete for the playoffs, but I'm not ready to put them in the top half of the Western Conference. But this team is fun, and it's a great start. Fun, good start. Take it for what it is. Let's not get out over our skis. Let's give it about another Jeez. two weeks, you three guys weeks. Are such party poopers. Mm-hmm. My wife did call me a hater it's about the Blazers. Nine yesterday. and three. Like, come on. It's nine more, and three. It's That's a small five. sample size, no, though. No, come on. Y- yes. That's a small sample size. It would be size. like being, some love. But it, think about it this way, Judy. It would be like being two and one in the NFL. It'd be like hitting 750 in your first three major league games. It's not like being you're not, two you're and you're one. You're not in the But it is, It is the percentage of the schedule, sure. But, I mean, it's t- four times as many games. And but it's to six- me, that matters. It's the same percentage of the schedule, but that's not the same as going 2-1. It's just saying the two are different sports. That's all that's saying. How many games in the NFL do you need to see before you know if a team's good? Nine games, John. And if they win six, they are badasses. Go that's Seahawks. A, that's the thing. That was our question. That was our question yesterday for Judah. Like, are yeah. they good? Like, are they good? I don't so know. So you need to games. see a little more than half the season to know that the Packers are not good and the Seahawks are. That's that's right. Yeah. Okay, so I'm saying we need to see about 25 NBA games. I agree. We're halfway there. The end of November, they'll have played 22 games. I think at the end of November, we can make a lot better call. We revisit this conversation. Yes. And I'm look, I'm willing to say this has been a pleasant surprise. It's been awesome. I think they've been everything we've asked them to be. And it's not Damian Lillard scoring 50 a game. Like that's This is way more fun. Way more fun. Some weird stuff going on here at Research Stadium, by the way. They are uh, they have put 68 minutes on the clock, and it's counting down. What happens in 68 minutes? <laughs> That's when you got your duck guest on, right? <laughs> There's some cameras that have been set up. A couple of people have popped their heads out from the uh, Oregon State locker room to look out onto the field. I'm just kind of wondering, like, what do they do? In 68 minutes and 23 seconds, 22 seconds, 21 seconds, something's going to happen here at the stadium. I might be the only person to see it. We're going to talk about the home field advantage in college football and in the Pac-12 conference. Why are the home teams winning at such a hot clip in this conference? Why are the home favorites virtually unbeatable? And what is the biggest home field advantage in the Pac-12? We'll debate it coming up. Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I don't know if you're into wagering or not, but I know you're into sports and I know you're uh, fascinated like I am. Uh, to figure out sort of what is going on when you see something. I always try to figure out what's going on. But um, 
it's interesting to me to look at uh, teams, especially home teams, in the Pac-12 conference. And it's really interesting to kind of look at teams that are favored at home this season. They are uh, the home teams are not just winning the games at a remarkable clip. They are 37 and one. They are covering the point spread more than 70 percent of the time. So the home favorites are not just winning; they're covering. Uh, Arizona, as a home favorite, has covered the spread. Oregon is four and zero against the spread at home. Oregon State is three and zero at home against the spread. And in fact, Oregon and Oregon State have the biggest point differential in covering games. Oregon has been 13.6 points per game better than the point spread. An average of 13. They're they're getting two more touchdowns than even the point spread uh, at home. So they're covering and they're covering easily in, in games at home. Oregon State is at 12 points better than the spread at home. Those are huge advantages at home. So, guys, let's just kick this around for a minute. This has not happened before in the history of the Pac-12. The home team's 37-1 and when they are favored. The home favorites are winning all the time almost. What is happening, and why is it that this season in particular, it is this trend has emerged? Yeah, I don't know that there's a good reason. Is it just kind of a... Uh, like a, just a one-off thing that this is the year that the Pac-12 home teams are dominant because it is especially uh, noticeable this season. Maybe it's, home favorites. Yeah, yeah, maybe it's because of the COVID stuff. Now that fans are back in the uh, stadiums, I really have no idea why it is, but it does seem like, especially in the Pac-12, the difference between home and road is so different, and it's for a lot of teams. You, you know, yeah. you're asking us to rank like the top home advantages. I'm going through, and it's like, yeah, that team's really good at home. That team has a really good home field advantage. I think it's just, you know, maybe there's good atmospheres in the Pac-12. I really have no good reason why. The three best advantages are U- Utah is 9.2 points per game better at home than they are uh, uh, on the road. Um, Oregon is 13.6 points better at home than the road. Oregon State is 12 points better home and road. Um, but here's another thing. I, I actually think we have, they have two things going on. One, I think there's a huge division between the good teams and the bad teams in the conference. If you think about it, it's Oregon, USC, UCLA, Utah, then Washington, Oregon State. Then a huge gap between the top six or seven and then the rest of the conference. So I actually think that we're not getting the bottom half of the conference. Like I don't think that those teams are being favored in most games, even when they're at home. Because there's a huge gap between the haves and the have-nots. So there's only 38 times in this whole season that you've had teams as a home favorite. Now, I'm going to look at home underdogs just to see how many home underdog games there have been. Cal has been home underdog five times. Um, You've got uh, Colorado has been a home underdog nine times. Stanford seven times. Arizona State six times, Washington State five times, uh, Oregon State has uh, been a home underdog four times in uh, in the last uh, in, you know in this season. Um, but so I think you know you're not getting USC and Oregon and Utah as a home dog in general. So 
when they're at home, they're favored, and they're favored big. So I just don't know. Judah, do you have a theory why the home favorites are so dominant? Your point about the uh, bottom half of the conference never being favored at home is, I think, a good point. I'd be curious to see, yeah, how often are those big road favorites covering, like Oregon covering at Cal, Oregon covering well, at Arizona. You know, like that. that's a good uh, the Beavers have been underdogs four times at home. Well, no, no, no. Excuse me. Right. Let me let me look at home underdog. I was looking at underdog in general. Oh, okay. Beavers have not been an underdog at home. Or they, excuse me, they USC, have been in one right? game. One game. USC yes, is the USC the only game. One, and but they ended up being favored with Boise and. and but here's here's the thing. Even know. even in that uh, even in that game, uh, at home they were they were a three and a half point. Underdog. It opened at six and a half and got down yeah. to like three and a half or four yeah. by kick. It was three and a half is what I'm seeing as the final line, and they ended up losing by three. So they were literally they were a half a point better even than the spread at home. Um, or excuse me, two and a half points better than the spread at home. Uh, so Oregon State has been one time this season has been a home dog. Uh, Oregon has not been a home underdog. Utah's not been a home underdog. USC has not been a home underdog. But here are the teams that have been home underdogs. UCLA's been a home underdog twice, but won the game outright both times. Utah was one of those. Yeah. Arizona Arizona State has been a home underdog three times. Arizona's been a home underdog four times. Colorado's been a home underdog five times. Stanford has been a home underdog three times. Washington State twice. I mentioned Oregon State once and Cal twice. So, um, yeah, I think, you know, we're seeing the good teams obviously are being favored road and home uh, equally, but let's look at uh, let's look at Oregon as an away an away team. Uh, Oregon's not been an underdog in any game this season except Besides the Georgia game. Georgia, yeah, yeah. So I think that's really interesting that Oregon's just favored outright in all these games. So I don't know, man. I just think there's a division between the haves and the have-nots, and then. The, the home field just seems to matter a lot in this conference, and there are some definite home field advantages. Like, you know, that's maybe that's as simple as that. You, you could be right because the division of teams, like, you know, you put them in tiers, there's a clear top four teams in the Pac-12, right? And then you look at the middle tier, Washington, Oregon State, you think those teams could win if they're at home. But when they're on the road, I think it's going to be tough for those teams to beat anybody in the Pac-12. They could lose anybody on the Pac-12 as well on the road. So I think you might be right. I think it's just kind of the tiers of – Tears of the Pac-12. We got the top four teams. After that, it's kind of just you know a lot of lot of uh, congestion there. Yeah. The the top four teams are eighteen and zero as a home as a home favorite, and then against the spread, those top four teams. Uh, I'm looking for a loss right now. Utah lost one. They're four and one. Uh, USC's three and two. UCLA's two and two. So they're f- five and four, nine and four. They are. Uh, Thirteen and five, the top uh, the top four teams against the spread at home as a favorite. So a couple, couple of quick things on that then. That's why I don't understand the line movement here with Huskies mm-hmm. Ducks coming yeah. toward UW. I don't Doesn't get make that. Any sense. And then secondly, John, if you put your bookmaker hat on, where would you put the well, Oregon Washington line? Where would I you think, put it? I think it should be sixteen and a half. I think the right line is 16 and a half. That's why I think it's wrong, and it's moving the wrong direction. I agree. And But how yeah. much of that is matchups on the field, and then how much of that is the Autzen Stadium magic or this home field advantage that you're talking about? I think that's, it, that's more I think of it worth. I think Autzen's worth about – if this game were in Seattle, 
I think the spread should be closer to ten and a half. It, you know, I think I think uh, that home field is worth about seven points. I think it should be like seven and a half in Seattle. Oregon yeah. favored by seven and a half, and but Maybe. I but I agree that it should be sixteen and a half at Austin. Like yeah. that's crazy talk, but that's how it feels to me. And I think it, you know the thing that's weird to me. I actually think the Oregon State Cal spread is pretty good. You know, I I looked at it, I had a hard time with that one. I think that that's a lot of points for for uh, Oregon State's offense to uh, to cover. But I I uh, I was uh, messaging with one of the Oregon State assistant coaches today. And, you know, the coaches always say the same thing. They say, hey, uh, you know, it's going to be really hard. They got good players. You know, they never tell you anything that's going to be bulletin board material. But I told the guy, I said, I have a hard time seeing Cal get more than 17 points in this game. There's a, I think there's a real chance that Cal gets 7 or 10 or 13 or 14 points in this game against Oregon State tomorrow uh, at Reeser Stadium. And I think, I think Washington, I don't, like, look, guys, is Washington better than UCLA? No. They're not. Is are they off? The, uh, is their passing game better? The passing no. game is better, but UCLA's run game is damn yeah. good. Damn Ru- good. UCLA's very. UCLA's good. UCLA might be the second best team in the conference. I think they, they might are. Be. I think they go to Vegas. I think yeah. they beat USC and they yeah. go to Vegas. They might be. They are better than Washington. I I I picked Washington earlier in the year in that game, and I paid for it. Washington. They're not better. Washington's not better than UCLA. They're not, but that's that's the reason why Washington is you know twelve and a half, thirteen and a half. UCLA was what five and a half, six and a half. It was six and a half. Yeah, so but they're what, giving them a seven seven point cushion there. But let's not oh, forget the spread. Let's look at the game. UCLA came to Autzen Stadium. Washington's going to Autzen Stadium. There's a parallel here. UCLA got into this game. They scored on every possession to start the game against Oregon. They looked up and they were down by twenty two points. I think it's going to be worse for Washington. I think I don't think Washington's defense can stop Oregon. What about the onside kick in UCLA? That was such a huge moment. Can that get replicated again? Because that totally changed game flow. Yeah, it's a turnover. I mean, it was a turnover, and I think Michael Penix Jr. will have a turnover in this game. I think, I think Oregon is going. I, you know, I don't. I, I don't want to say they're going to embarrass Washington because I don't think it has to do with. I don't think Dan Lanning's the kind of coach that wants to embarrass an opposing coach. He just hasn't shown that, right? We've watched late in games. He'll take guys out. Yeah, but he hasn't played UW yet. Yeah, I think it's Oregon's... It's UW, man. you got to trash hate him. Week. you got a chance. It's hate week. Husky I think hate week. Come on, I man. think Oregon is now posturing for the playoff committee. They are at home. I think they're playing a team that is not as good as UCLA. Hammer I, I won't be surprised. I, you know, I picked Oregon big. Yeah. I, I have a... I, I can see this one being 48-24, 48-27. Like it, I think it's going to be a you know like a 21 point win for Oregon. I think they cover that 12 and a half now. I think they cover that easily. I am on an island by myself, and I yeah. you are. Steven's I love it. on the island. I love it. This is the way I like it because I agree with you, Jai. I think Shout is going to be rocking. I think it's going to be that quintessential Oregon flex on national TV that they need. It was it was that way against BYU. It was that way against UCLA. You really think Washington is is much better than those teams that couldn't hang? They're I don't not. think so. Even though Penix is great, that's just one dimension. I think. Yeah, they're not that good. And I saw him last week. That you know, it's it's the Kalen DeBoer. I I you know he's he's building something nice. Like the, Washington in two years, look out because if he finds a defense, if he continues that offensive trajectory and he finds a defense, they'll be really good. 
but they're not there right now. And Oregon is. Oregon is built to win this conference right now. And I think it's going to be a rude awakening. And I'll go further to say, look, Colorado's going to play USC tonight. Um, you know, I picked uh, I picked USC in that game, but I didn't pick them to cover against Colorado. I, I feel okay about that pick. I don't feel great about it, but I feel okay. Now, Washington State game, you know, I, I picked them to cover against Arizona State. I, I mostly feel good about it. Cal, Oregon State. I picked uh, I picked Oregon State to cover the 13 and a half points at home here at Research Stadium. You know, I, f- I feel all right about that. Utah, Stanford. Um, I you know I don't think Utah is going to cover the 24. I think Stanford is going to score a little in that game. Eh, but I'm on the fence there. Like I could be wrong on that one, but I'm not wrong about Oregon and Washington. <laughs> Oregon is going to cover the 12 and a half. It is my five star. You know, blue chip, whatever you want to call it, pick. That, the mortgage bet. <laughs> the, the spread is wrong on this game. This isn't me watching Marcus Mariota on Thursday night and hoping the Falcons can put a drive together, okay? How clueless was that? <sighs> really hard to watch. This Oregon-Washington game, I won't be surprised if people flip the TV off in the fourth quarter because it's out of hand. That's I think I think it has a chance to be that kind of game. <laughs> Steve, All right. So okay, uh, let me ask you this, John. Steve, pray I'm praying for the back, back door. door. Yeah. Is, 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 John, I want to know about this. Is your take more of an Oregon is really good take or a Washington is not great take? Because it sounds to me like both. you're saying Washington is no. not very good. Both. It's both. Oregon's Oregon's the best team in the conference, and and they are they're firing on all cylinders. Kenny Dillingham is playing a video game. I mean, it's. He's have he's throwing the ball to offensive linemen. He's having the running back throw to the quarterback. He's just having fun right now. This is it got boring for him, and so he's like, you know, let's give Washington something to think about. He's operating on a level that is, um, you know, they're just they're just offensive lines too good, the quarterbacks too good, the receivers are good, running backs are good. They would have to have like a three turnover, four turnover game for for Washington to have a shot. So I I just think. Oregon's firing on all cylinders, and then I've seen Washington, okay? They're good on offense passing. They can't run. They don't run the ball. Oregon State's defensive backs did a really nice job, gave up one or two big plays. That was it against Washington. And, you know, Softy's talking about nickel and dime, and they're going to do this and that. I mean, it's just he's wishing and hoping. (laughs) He's not, you know, and he's not coming to the game. That tells you everything you need to know. Oh, that no, you're right. That's sneaky big. Line should be 13 and a half. I was gonna say it should go up a point, point yeah. or two. Softy not going. Yeah, softy uh, not going. Come on. I like that you're disagreeing because it creates, you know, not everyone has to agree. Well, you know, I'll ask you this too, John, and not, you don't have to answer it now. Uh, I'll answer later. it. Later, Stephen right and I now. agree that Oregon does not run the table. Hmm. I want to know if you agree with that or not. I think the game they could lose is at Research Stadium. Yes. That's the game. Yes, it is. Because I think Oregon State will uh, run the ball, and I think Oregon State is uh, not afraid to rumble. And Oregon State's very experienced, and, again, they're just different at home. And so you get you get a team that plays about 12 points better at home. That's a game all of a sudden. Now, I think Oregon is more talented but I think that is the one that I look at, and you know, and and look, anything could happen. You go to Vegas, you plan for a conference championship, but I think Oregon's going to beat Washington. 
I think Oregon is going to beat Utah at home. I mean, you, that's going to be a, that will be a, the the other two games, Utah and Oregon State. They'll be harder games for Oregon than this Washington game. Much harder. Agree. Like to rank them. See, I rank them as the Pac-12 title game to be the mo- the hardest because it's going to be a neutral site game. I know Oregon's great at home, but on the road against a really good team, that's where it could be troublesome. Yeah, and they would be playing potentially there with pressure. Right. Lose the game and you're out of the playoff. And you know if they are undefeated at that point, or at least uh, if they are 12 and one. But um, Utah, Utah's sneaky too because Kyle Whittingham, you you know what he's doing here, like. Mm-hmm. We have seen this. They geared last season for the whole season was built around having the team ready to play in November against Oregon at Rice-Eccles Stadium, and they ambushed Oregon and just kicked the crap out of them. And then Kayvon Thibodeau and Oregon's psyche were so broken, and Mario Cristobal probably looking a little bit at the horizon in Miami, uh, you know, going, hey, am I going to end up over there? Like, Oregon psychologically was just done. Like, I... I told Utah people, I said, I can't, you know, I cannot believe that Oregon lost the way they did the, you know, at Rice Eccles, but worse yet, I couldn't believe that it was duplicated in the conference title game. It was like a mirror of the first game. It's embarrassing. Yeah. And but but you know, Kyle Whittingham, you know what he's going to do? He's going to shut guys down this week. They're going to play Cam Rising, you know, three quarters, get way ahead of Stanford, shut him down. He's going to get Tavon Thomas back at the running back. He's going to – they're going to run wild. They're going to run for like 240 yards of rushing, and they're going to rest a bunch of guys. They're going to win kind of a lower-scoring game by their standards against Stanford. And then, uh, you know, it could be like 28-7, could be 28-10, something like that. Then they're going to get on the bus – and they're going to go straight to Eugene, and they're going to hide in the bushes and wait for Oregon to come out of the tunnel. I mean, it's that's what Utah is going to try to do to to Oregon. And it'll be interesting because I think Oregon's better, and they're playing at home. But, you know, that Utah staff, they're good. They're, that is a good coaching staff. They'll be ready to play. Man, it's going to be fun. All right, we're going to go through our picks in the next segment. Leave it here. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano. Peter Sampson is up next with the Pulse from 6 to 7 on 750 The Game. Well, we're going to rip through the Pac-12 games, the schedule. Uh, obviously, you got a big one coming up tonight. USC's playing Colorado. It's a big game. It's a Pac-12 game. USC has, uh, has not looked great to me for uh, at different points of the season. But, you know, i got to give them credit. They just keep winning. And as long as they keep winning, they're going to they're gonna matter in this conference. Um, you know, I think the heavy lifting for USC, though, is coming in the subsequent weeks as they will play UCLA in a road game. That'll be a big one for them coming up. Uh, next weekend is a big weekend in the conference, but let's focus on tonight. 6.30, FS1, guys. Colorado, USC. Uh, USC's favored by 34. I think Colorado is going to cover with the 34 points. I have it 49-21. Do you agree or disagree? I agree. I actually feel pretty good about it for some reason. I, you know, I think it's a lot of points with this USC defense who hasn't been great all season long, especially lately. Like they've been giving up, giving up a lot of points to you know teams like Cal, who don't have a great offense. Colorado, not a great offense as well. Um, you know, for USC, it looks like Jordan Addison is going to play. I know he had been. Uh, he's been hurt. He's been banged up, but it looks like he's gonna play tonight, which would be big for USC. But uh, I think Colorado can uh, stay within that 34. 
Yeah, as much as I don't like unanimously agreeing, I agree. I, agree. I think 34 is too much for USC against just about anybody. So I'll take Colorado in 34. Yeah, it comes down to me, like, how many points can Colorado get? That's where I start my evaluation of this game. And I have Colorado, you know, normally they've been at 17. It's a little sneaky if you look at the Cal game. You see them getting uh, to 20, but they didn't really get 20. That was overtime. So um, I think they're getting 21 in this game. You guys, where do you think – how many points does Colorado score? Let's play that game. Yeah, I think it's in the 20s. Um, I'll, I'll go a little different, a little more, 24. Yeah. Yeah, I got 45 to 20. So I think they get to 20, but that's yeah. – that's an, I don't think USC gets to 50. Yeah, that's the thing. And if they can get to 20, I think USC has a hell of a time covering the 34. Uh, Arizona State's at Washington State. That game's tomorrow at 1230, Pac-12 Networks. Washington State, eight-point favorite. I like Washington State. I think they're playing for more. They're going for uh, win number six in bowl eligibility. I think they have the better defense. I think they're they're at home. They have more to play for. I have it 31-21. I think Washington State covers. Yeah, talk about home field advantages. I mean, Sneaky Pullman might be in the top three in the Pac-12. Might be Utah, Oregon, Washington State. That could be a real thing. Arizona State wants nothing to do with going up to Pullman and playing this game. I don't think uh, – yeah, I'd take Washington State to lay the points. Yeah, I've got 31-17 Cougs. They found their identity again. Good for them. You know, three-game losing skid and just crush Stanford. So that, I think they're they're back to it, and it's a coronation of sorts for them to get bowl eligible. Arizona State's a little bit of a stray dog, so I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, they've they've tended to play up and down a little. They're a little more erratic and inconsistent. I wouldn't pet them if they were a dog, that kind of thing. <laughs> you know, my kids always go, is, you know, see a dog outside Starbucks and they'll ask the owner, is, is he friendly? Like, I, I see Arizona State on a leash. I'm going, eh, let's, come on, guys, let's walk around them. Because I don't know what they're going to do, it, but, I, but I think Washington State wins that one. Uh... Washington's at Oregon. We've talked about this one. Opened at 13.5. Is Oregon a 13.5-point favorite? It's down to 12.5. It's going the wrong way. Too many Washington fans, too many haters on Oregon betting this line down. I have it 48-27. I think Oregon is going to win this one by 21 or more. It could get uglier. I am one of the haters. I like Washington plus these points. Uh, Again, Oregon in the pass defense, 127th in the nation, pass yards allowed per game, 116th in pass completion percentage. Washington, the best pass offense in the nation, most yards per game, 23rd in uh, uh, completion percentage. I think Washington's going to be able to throw the football, and unlike UCLA, I think they're going to get into the end zone enough to cover the points. I think Oregon wins, but I think Washington stays within the number, maybe even backdoor. I just want to point something out, okay? Yeah. I get it. Oregon's given up a bunch of pass yards, but why? Why? Because they're ahead in games. The opposing team has to throw, and Washington can't run. So I, I wonder if Dan Lanning is worth a damn as a defensive coach. Because if he is, he's going to take away the pass. He's going to dare Washington to run. And let's see what they do. Judah, how do you see it? Yeah, it's 45-30 for me. Ducks win. They cover. It goes over 72-and-a-half. I think the back door is there. And to Steven's point, like, I think Penix throws for 325. I think he throws for 330. I agree. But <laughs> I don't I, think that I agree. is the same thing as putting the ball in the paint. And I, I don't think they get it in the paint enough to, to keep up with Oregon. I think Oregon's offense does its thing. I, I really do. If I'm Washington, I, I'm hoping that there's a surprise, you know, rainstorm that comes in or whatnot and uglies up the game and there's balls on the carpet a bunch of times and, you know, that could help them. Or Kalen DeBoer onside kicks twice and recovers it. Like, they're going to need that kind of night, I think, to close that gap. Uh, but let's see what happens. That's going to be a fun game. 
Uh, Cows at Oregon State. I'm here at Research Stadium Saturday, 6 p.m., so about 24 hours from now. I will be, uh, you know, they, they will be in the stadium playing. Beavers are 9-1 in their last 10 at home. Uh, they are favored by 13.5. I think that spread's about right. I think it's 28-14, Oregon State over Cal. I'll take the Beavers to cover. I don't feel great about it, but I think they do cover. I know they win, but I think they cover. Yeah, I don't feel good about it either, John, but I agree with you. I think Oregon State covers this game. How many points can Cal really score against the Beavs in Corvallis? I think that's the big question, just how good they are. But it always scares me to lay a lot of points against a Justin Wilcox team, uh, especially when Wilcox has done good against these double-digit spreads, even this season. You look at USC, double-digit dog covered uh, covered at Notre Dame earlier this year. So a double-digit dog by Wilcox scares me, but I, I'm still going to lay the points with Oregon State. I begrudgingly lay the points with Oregon State, 30-16. to 16. I think there's a non-offensive touchdown for the Beavs, though. Mm-hmm. They got the pick six with Easton last week. I think whether it's a Gould punt return or a, a scoop and score, I think that's the way they cover this game. You could be right. Um, let's go to the next game. Stanford's at Utah, Saturday, tomorrow, 7 p.m. on ESPN. I mentioned this one earlier. Like, I think Utah's so much better than Stanford. I think we all agree on that. But I think there's a, I think Utah's going to play this game different than they've played recent games. Kyle Whittingham doesn't care. He doesn't care what the FS1 broadcast thinks of his starting quarterback. He doesn't care. He is just he's got a he's playing chess here. And so I think he's focused on November 19th. If I know him, I think he's gearing towards next week. So he wants to win. He doesn't want to show a whole bunch against Stanford. So I think Utah's run game, if you can get a like a special hybrid bet on rushing attempts for Utah, they're going to go way over their average. They're going to rush for a whole bunch of yards against Stanford. And I think there's a real chance here that this game is lower scoring than people expect. I, I do think Utah is going to score. I, th- I have them getting 38. I have Stanford getting 16. So I'm taking Stanford in the 24-point spread in this game. Yeah, I don't think any of that matters. I think uh, Utah handles them at home, even without players, if they're bench players. Utah is just too good for Stanford. Yeah, I'll go uh, 35-14 Utah. All right. Uh, coming up, we'll finish our last couple games. Leave it here. Back to the bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Woo-hoo! Happy Hour is coming up. I am broadcasting today from Research Stadium where uh, Oregon State and Cal will play tomorrow. About 40 miles from here, 44 miles from here, uh, Oregon will be hosting Washington. I got to tell you, like, I don't, you know, I don't know if you've ever been inside of a college football stadium, uh, you know, on the day before a game. But uh, the TV crews are setting up. Uh, the camera operators are testing the cameras. There's a whole bunch of pointing and gesturing going on by people who are down on the field. Um, there have been, uh, you know, they have a tarp right now covering the Beaver logo at the middle of the field. Uh, it must be, there must be some reason why they want that Beaver logo covered at the middle of the field. I have seen uh, a couple of players who have wandered out onto the field um, and kind of just looked around. I saw uh, Cal's buses pulled up. Uh, a little bit ago, and, uh, you know, I saw the they're unloading equipment for tomorrow's game. There's a whole bunch of activity that happens, what I'm saying is, before the game even gets played. There's you know, there's a whole industry. I told Stephen before the show, Stephen, 
vouch for me. We were talking about this. Yeah, it, it takes so many people just to get a game going. Like, we don't realize how hard of a process it really is. And those people deserve some thanks because a lot of, most of the time, I mean, we don't see anything go wrong. Yeah, and it doesn't happen without them. Uh, the final game, Arizona's at UCLA on Saturday. We didn't get to this one in the last segment. It's on Fox. UCLA's a 19.5-point favorite. I think they're going to cover. I have it 48-24. How do you guys see it? Yeah, I think UCLA covers Arizona coming off that five-game stretch where they play the top five teams in the Pac-12. I think they're tired. UCLA covers. Yeah, this is different than Utah, though. So I'll take Arizona plus the uh, plus the 20. Their offense shows up. Yeah, I, think, I like their offense. I just wonder if they're on fumes at this point. Um, all right, coming up, 5 o'clock hour. We'll start it with the 5 at 5. And then we're going to talk to a the former president of the Duck Club who is going to share some stories on why Oregon and Washington hate each other. Why do they hate each other? Well, we'll talk to one of the guys who's been in the middle of it. B-F-F-T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald-faced truth. It's going to be a fun, fast-moving hour of radio, the happy hour. We're going to talk to Dick Allen, former president of the Duck Club in uh, Oregon. He will be joining us to tell some stories. Why do Oregon and Washington hate each other? Talk to one of the guys that's in the middle of that inferno. Dick Allen, longtime president of the Duck Club, will be joining us. You guys notice the theme on the show? We had Dick Oldfield on earlier. Then we have Dick Allen on. It's a dick rivalry here. Two dicks on today's show. And you are live from where the Beavers play. And then earlier, <laughs> we had, we played some Rich Brooks. Richard Brooks. That's another dick. That's amazing. Are you going to start talking about the Charlotte Hornets, New Jerseys? <laughs> what do you think about the Blazers uh, carpet jerseys? I'm, I'm going to say I'm going to save that for what's your peeve. Oh, I think you can tell. Where I'm okay, going. we got what's your peeve coming up this hour as well. Jeez. Plus, what's on tap? I have just noticed, like, there's some days where we'll have a couple of Johns on the show, and then there's other days where you know it just seems these things come up. And I looked, and I was like, I'm, you know, one of the first rules of journalism is do you, you got to get the name right. So I'm always double checking the name. And so when I saw we had Dick Oldfield on the show and then we had Dick Allen on the show, I was like, did I get that right? Do we really have two dicks on this show today? So turns out we do. In fact, we do. So Dick Allen coming up, former president of the Duck Club. But first, the five, five, five. At five, five, five. The five at five. Well, the Fever have the number one overall pick in the WNBA draft. It's the first time the Indiana Fever have earned that pick. And by the way, should we say earned the pick when you get the number one overall pick? Do you earn that or do you uh, do you have the best chance to get the pick because, you know, the cumulative record over the last two regular seasons was so bad. Fever had the worst record in the last two seasons, they had a 44% chance to get the number one pick, and by golly, they did. The uh, Minnesota Lynx got the number two pick. The Atlanta Dream will select third. The Mystics will be fourth. Then a whole bunch of other teams, but there it is. The Fever have draft pick Fever. They got the number one pick. Number two in our five at five. Let's talk about getting healthy. 
The 49ers have had a bunch of injuries in over the first eight weeks of the season, but uh, they're going to get a bunch of players back. They're going to welcome back a whole bunch of players. Among those coming back, Debo Samuel coming back, Elijah Mitchell coming back, Jordan Willis coming back, uh, Jawan Jennings is coming back, Kyle Juszczyk is coming back, the uh, finger, dislocated finger fullback. Was it his pinky or his fifth finger, guys? I, I think don't it was remember. his fourth finger, wasn't it? <laughs> his fourth finger. So if we establish that the thumb is really a finger, is that finger number one? Well, yeah, because if it's not considered a finger, you have four fingers, right? Yeah, because when they say the fifth finger, I'm going, wait a minute. What's the first finger? You gotta, think, of, you gotta think about think it. Think about it. Think about it. I mean, is, is it the, a finger? Is the big toe a big toe? Well, it, the, it has the word toe in it. But it's, it's definitely different than the other toes. Yeah, but we don't call it a thumb finger. <laughs> I'm just saying, if you're going to say the pinky's the fifth finger, Tell me which finger on your hand. Hold up the number one finger. If you're not hitchhiking, we aren't talking about the same thing. Number three, number three in our five at five. Tom Brady says he has no regrets about coming back. He doesn't. He's four and five. It's the first time he's sitting below 500 nine weeks into a regular season. But he told reporters today he has quote unquote zero regrets about rejoining the Bucks after his 40-day retirement. Zero, he said. He returned because he wanted to compete. He spoke to the team. They wanted him back. He says he doesn't regret those types of things. Um, you know, his personal life not going so well. He and Giselle going separate directions. The professional life not going so well. But, uh, you know, he's trying to get to 500. And now he has a chance to get to 500 uh, on Sunday if they can beat Judah Newby's Seattle Seahawks. But, uh, you know, there it was. The Buccaneers sitting at 4-5 and five in the NFL. Not doing so good. And by the way, Seattle is at Tampa. And that game is in Munich. How do you feel about getting up at 6.30 in the morning to watch that? I'm up anyway, so it's going to be awesome. <laughs> That's right. You got baby. Yeah. You and your daughter are going to be watching that game? Uh, that's like, we're going minimal screen time, but the screen time she is getting is when Gino's on the TV. So She got her yeah. little Seahawks jersey? Yeah, uh, we she went. She outgrew her, her three-month onesie. I got to get her another one. Got to get her a Gino jersey. Yeah, Gino jersey. Do you judge other parents when you see screen time? No. Because no, I'm going to tell you, when you get a couple, few kids... You get a little more liberal with yeah. the screen time. They're, they're lifesavers, not going to lie. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. No, I don't judge at all. At first you go, look at those horrible parents and all that screen time. And then you go, you know what? It's just baby Einstein. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, by the way, Sabrina Ionescu has been hired. She got a job. About time. New York Liberty guard Sabrina Ionescu, the number one pick in the 2020 WNBA draft is taking an off-season job with the Oregon Ducks. You know what her uh, title is? Her title is Director of Athletic Culture. Ducks coach Kelly Graves announced the part-time staff position today. He said Sabrina's going to help with student-athlete development and the five pillars of Kelly Graves' program. Passion, integrity, unity, thankfulness, and servanthood. 
And if you're counting those on your fingers, servanthood is your fifth finger or your pinky. <laughs> Sabrina exemplifies what it means to be an Oregon Duck, Kelly Graves said, and he's got that right. This is good. This is a good move by Oregon. It's smart. Kelly Graves is no dummy. He knows that having Sabrina around the program, tied to the program, that's good for the program. It's good for the game. And I'm glad uh, she is interested in being involved. Finally, my final thing in my five at five, again, wiggling my fifth finger on that one, the, uh, the ballots for the National Baseball Hall of Fame will go out soon. I got a call today from the Hall of Fame itself, literally on my phone. The caller ID popped up and said, Hall of Fame. And I thought, maybe it's finally happening. And uh, I answered the phone, and it was the director of the Hall of Fame who said to me, hey, we're just double-checking that you want to vote in the Baseball Writers Association ballot. And I said, of course I want to vote. And he said, well, you missed an email from us. We just want to make sure. Go back into your junk folder and find it. And I did. You know what it tells me, guys? Why are they interested in trying to track down voters who may have missed an email? It tells me that there might be a little bit of voter apathy when it comes to the Baseball Hall of Fame vote. I'm interested in that. I asked the Baseball Hall of Fame today because every year you get a number that is corresponding to, uh, you know, what member you are in the Baseball Hall of Fame. Last year, I had, I have, I'm member number 199 last year. Guess what number I am this year? 99. No, no it's not that bad. I'm number 181. Mm. So it tells me that 18 people in front of me that had more seniority than me either died or said, I don't want to vote anymore. And they backed out. I think the Baseball Hall of Fame, keep an eye on the number of ballots in the vote. It's just a hunch right now, but keep an eye. I have a feeling that we're going to get some attrition in the voting ranks for the Baseball Hall of Fame. I think people are exhausted with the drama, and they decided, hey, we're not voting for Bonds and Clemens. We're going to be adamant, and then those guys are off the ballot, and that is passed now to this other committee. I wonder if some of the people are going, hey, my work here is done, and they're no longer voting. Keep an eye on that. I normally don't answer when I see a call that pops up that's not from someone, but it said Hall of Fame, guys. I should have screen grabbed that. It was time. I should have answered and said, yes, I'll be there. <laughs> I'm honored. <laughs> a suggestion on my keynote speaker. <laughs> I just thought it was interesting. They're, they're tracking down people who missed the email. And normally, like, I would think they would be pretty militant about just going, you know what, you missed the email, you don't get to vote. But they tracked me down, and they said, hey, you just need to find that email, it's in your junk folder, and uh, make sure that you uh, confirm that you want a ballot, and we'll send it to you. And I thought, well, thank you very much. So uh, the, we'll have a whole other conundrum that comes up now when I get the ballot of who I should be voting for. But it just tells me, they've never done that before. Uh, maybe I've never been late. Maybe they do it every year. I don't know. But the National Baseball Hall of Fame seems awfully interested in making sure everybody who's eligible to vote is going to cast a ballot. And I think that is interesting by itself. All right, coming up, we're going to talk to a guy who helped run the uh, duck luncheons, the duck club. You know, I, these things were legendary. They would hold these get-togethers where they would serve chicken and rice pilaf for years. 
They'd hold a big luncheon. They'd pass around the game ball. The head coach comes in and talks, tells a few words to the people. These are all donors. These are longtime Oregon honks who would gather in the room. And I don't mean that with negativity. I mean that with like, hey, these are diehard fans. Well, the president of the Duck Club reached out to me because he heard my interview with Rich Brooks. He's heard me talk to Coach Aliotti on yesterday's show. And he said, man, you guys, you're missing the origin of this Washington-Oregon hatred. There's so many good stories wrapped up in this. If you like good stories and you like a good rivalry, I want you to leave it here. Because we will talk to the former president of the Duck Club coming up. Leave it here. you got the BFT. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I'm really excited to bring on our next guest because I love good stories. I do. Dick Allen going to be joining us. Uh, longtime uh, president of the Oregon Club of Portland. And for people who don't know the Oregon Club of Portland, these this is like, you know, these are the diehards. These are the OGs. Dick Allen joining us now. Dick, give us kind of the origin of the Oregon Club there. Uh, how did that start, the Oregon Club of Portland? Yeah, hi, John. Nice to talk to you. Um, well, I joined the Oregon Club in the 60s, but it existed uh, at least 10 years before that. Uh, so it would have ha I was a student at the U of O from 1954 to 1958, 58 being the Rose Bowl year, of course. Uh, so anyway, when I... Uh, uh, got back out of school and uh, graduate school and into back to Portland. Uh, I went to the Oregon Club meetings, which at the time were very low-key. There were maybe 25, 30 people. We met uh, on the River Queen. There was that boat in the Portland uh, Willamette River for a while, and then we went to the Holiday Inn, crossed from the uh, Coliseum, uh, and we really needed to drum up membership, so we started inviting uh, the coaches to come up and speak to us, and uh, that increased membership. And as membership grew, we eventually then migrated to the MAC Club. Um, I was president of the Oregon Club in 1980. Rich Brooks came on in, I think, 76 or 77, something like that. But 1980 was Rich's first winning season as a coach. He was 6-3-2. and two. We had two ties <laughs> that year. And uh, so anyway, that, it was a, a good year. And um, uh, the, the Husky uh, rivalry, of course, is, is an old one, almost as old as the Oregon State one, but not quite. And actually, I think interstate versus state across state line rivalries are not that uncommon. Uh, for a, a while, I lived in uh, uh, Colorado, and in Colorado, the big rivalry was between CU and Nebraska. And I'm sure if you went to Michigan State and asked them who their rival was, they'd say Michigan, but Michigan would say Ohio State. So uh, for for Oregon fans to not like Washington, I don't think is unusual. And in fact, there's been Portland-Seattle rivalries and various things still existing today. The Timbers st still have a rivalry with Seattle, et cetera, Winterhawks, et cetera. So uh, 
the Husky, the, the thing that I remember the most about not liking the Huskies was, and Rich Brooks mentioned this when you had him on that podcast, that uh, in 1948, Oregon and Cal tied for the, the Pac-A championship. And so the, the schools then voted to break that tie to decide who to go to the Rose Bowl. And the four California schools stuck together, but the Huskies deserted the rest of the Northwest and voted with California to send Cal to the Rose Bowl, not Oregon, which did not sit well. Oregon's quarterback at the time was Norm Van Brocklin. Uh, that Oregon team went to the Cotton Bowl, played Doak Walker and SMU in a classic game as it was. But anyway, Duck fans certainly didn't appreciate the, the Huskies doing that. And over the years, as Rich mentioned in his talk with you, there was just this dislike of the Huskies who always were rubbing it into us. They were the big brother. We were the little brother. And then there was the issue, again, I think it was 57, 58, when the Huskies, along with USC and UCLA, got sanctioned by the NCAA. They used to joke that you know Hugh McElhaney, the Washington running back, it took a cut in pay when he turned pro. <laughs> and uh, so, so anyway, the the those three schools were were not allowed to go to the Rose Bowl. And even though the Huskies beat Oregon that year, the Huskies were ineligible. And so, the, so Oregon got to go to the Rose Bowl which was a big deal because I think 1920 was the last time. And, and I remember Rich Brooks telling me that uh, Oregon would be lucky if once a decade they could go to the Rose Bowl, but, but even that was kind of pie in the sky. It, it, we just were never going to be as, as good as, as the big schools. So, um, again, that, that fomented the uh, Oregon-Washington rivalry even more. As Rich pointed out, they always seem to find a way to beat us. And that's why the Kenny Wheaton pick was such a big deal. Uh, I think John Wilner was wondering whether or not that's where the Oregon-Washington rivalry started. But, of course, it started decades before that. The Kenny Wheaton pick was just a wonderful vengeance for all the time that the Huskies had rubbed our nose in. And, And if you may recall... Uh, and I think as Rich pointed out, they were driving for the winning touchdown with not much left in the game. And I think Brock Hewitt was the quarterback for yeah. Washington. Uh, and so anyway, uh, and I'm sure he regrets to this day, for some reason, instead of handing the ball off to a running back who probably would have scored, he threw the the pick. The, uh, Kenny picked it off, and, and of course the Jerry Allen going crazy is, is was forever Oregon history, which, which again, before Duck Games, they would always show up on the Jumbotron. They would always end their uh, whatever they were showing with the Kenny Wheaton pick. So that, of course, reinforced all that. Let me ask you a and question. So the, so the Huskies Dick, were just kind of sore Dick, winners. Me, Dick, let me ask you a question here. You're, you, yeah. As president of the Oregon Club of Portland, you guys got together, I think. Did you get together once a week during the season? Is that is that how it worked? 
Like, yes, yes. Yeah. I mean, okay. we, up until Chip Kelly, we would have the coach come up and visit with us. What happened to Chip? Like he did it his first couple years, didn't he? Yeah. Yes, and 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 then we set up a Zoom sort of thing. Chip was all mm. business, and the two-hour <laughs> drive to Portland, and then a two-hour drive back. That was four hours, not to mention the hour at the Duck Club. You know that that was a lost day to Chip, and, yeah. and he, which I can I can understand his yeah. point, and and he did agree to have, I don't think they called them Zoom calls at that time, but it, it was a video setup that we got that we could then talk to him, and they could have players come on and talk, and we would have Coach Aliotti and people like that also talk. So, uh, so it, that was okay, and. Uh, did the uh, did the, did Washington Week was you know because you would get I'm sure people some people came to all of the luncheons but I bet some people only came to some of them was Washington Week bigger with the turnout than other weeks or was it was it always the Civil War Week that was bigger what would be a big turnout Well I would say at our in our heyday at the Mac Club we were bringing in. 400, 450 people, we would fill the, the ballroom at the MAC. And, uh, and yes, uh, Husky Week was always big, as was the Oregon State game. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, we, we always had uh, big crowds, and uh, attendance was great. In, in the early days of the Oregon Club, back in the 70s, uh, you know, the board of directors were people who, uh, guys, are, are just Oregon legends. I mean, Art and Ed Mashofsky, uh, Dick Wintermute, Harold Taylor, Mort Bishop, uh, Greg Marshall, John Herman. These were guys were legends. And even people like Hobby Hobson would come to the meetings. And uh, I remember uh, when we, in order to get people enthused, I thought they should sing the fight song. But it turned out nobody knew the words except me. So, <laughs> could you I sing the fight song right now, like on on call? Would could I you could, remember it? Yeah. Let's do it. Sure. Let me hear Very it. Very good. Our alma mater. We will guard thee on and on. Fellows gather round and cheer her. Chant her glory, Oregon. Roar the praises of her warriors. Sing the story, Oregon. Under victory, urge the heroes of our mighty Oregon. And then we'll march, march on down the field, fighting for Oregon. Plow through the foeman's line, their strength will defy. We'll give a loud cheer for our men. They're out to win again. OAC will fight till the end, but we will win. How's that? I love that. (laughs) All right, I'm going to play something for you, and I want you to tell me the history of this. Okay, fans, here's the weather report for today's game. It's 70 degrees, slight wind from the north, and some clouds. But you know the real weather report, it never rains at Oxen Stadium. What? You were there. You were there in that heyday. Give me an idea. Yeah. Well, th- that's from a, a different scenario. At that time, I was on the board of directors for the Alumni Association, 
And Don Essig uh, was a facilitator. Uh, he, you know, he was a teacher and educator, been a principal. And, and so uh, Dan Rodriguez, the executive director of the Alumni Association, hired Don to be our facilitator for the meeting we were having. This was in the early 90s. And um, uh, at one of the breaks at the meeting, uh, Don, uh, we were talking about going to the game. He said, are you going to the game? I said, oh, of course I am. And he said, well, I hope you brought your rain gear because it's going to really be wet today. And I said, you know, Don, I, I'm an original Autzen Stadium season ticket holder. So I've, since 1966, I've been coming at four seats on the Section 11 and the 50-yard line. And the reason I chose Section 11, because it was on the sunny side of the field. And almost every time we would be sitting there in the sun, and you look across the field at the people on the south side who were shivering in their coats in the shade. And I said, I can, I can almost count on one hand the number of times that it has rained during the game. And I said, I have a theory about this. He says, what's your theory? I said, my theory is, is that as people enter the stadium, the crowd builds up, and then there's a big roar when the motorcycle comes out and people are all revved up. This big wave of hot air comes up out of the stadium. It parts the clouds, and it doesn't rain during the game. Now, after the game, the rain may return, but during the game, you know, it's not bad. Now, obviously, there's some exceptions to that, and including the 1983 Ice Bowl-slash-Toilet Bowl game, which happens to be the worst football game in history, I would say, both in terms of content and weather. But in any case, I told Don this, he laughed, and, and that was the end of it, I thought, until he announced this over the PA. And to my surprise, everybody in the stands joined in and saying, it never rains in Hudson Stadium. So, so when I saw Don later, when he wrote his book about this, I had him sign the book for me saying, thanks for giving me the tagline, It Never Rains in Autzen Stadium. I love that story. Uh, again, we're talking to uh, Dick Allen, who is the uh, former president of the Oregon Club of Portland. Uh, you guys used to meet, uh, you know, we've talked about this Oregon-Washington rivalry. Rick Neuheisel joined the rivalry. What role did he play? How hated did he become, or did he add some flavor to this rivalry? Yeah, he certainly added flavor to it. Uh, I, and again, I think this started with the Cotton Bowl game uh, where Oregon was playing Colorado and Neuheisel was the coach at, at CU. And they were beating us pretty soundly. And in the fourth quarter with, I don't know, two minutes left in the game, and they were ahead, I don't know, 35 to 14 or something like that. It was fourth down, and they went into punt formation, and it, and they ran a fake punt and scored an additional touchdown to run up the score. And I know that really frosted Mike Bellotti. And I remember them asking Neuheisel after the game why they, he ran up the score, and he pointed at the scoreboard and said, scoreboard, baby, and he laughed about this and then shortly after that there's a coaching vacancy at Washington and who do they hire the hated Rick Neuheisel so, so here we now had Neuheisel as coach of the Huskies 
who when they came into Hudson and won, they danced on the O and, you know, did, you know, like snow angels in the middle of the field, et cetera. They, anyway, he, he was thoroughly obnoxious, which, of course, is added to the rivalry of the obnoxious Huskies. So, yes, New Heisel certainly contributed to that. Give me an idea. In the heyday during your time, rather, if you could only win one, you know what I'm going to ask you. Do you win the rivalry game with Oregon State, or do you have more comfort beating Washington? Oh, definitely Washington is is the hated rival. Uh, as I said, this when I was in Colorado, it was the it was the Colorado Nebraska rivalry. Uh, I, I think that that rivalry is much greater. Um, in fact, I can remember going to the Fiesta Bowl when Oregon played CU, and CU was still basking in their win over Nebraska, and we're talking about how they should be number one, because I think at the time Nebraska was rated number two, and Oregon, with Joey Harrington at quarterback, just beat the crap out of them. And uh, as we were leaving Sun Devil Stadium, there were some CU kids who would probably had a little bit too much to drink, and they said, well, at least we don't have to live in Eugene. And I said, well, what's wrong with living in Eugene? And they said, well, there are a bunch of granola-chewing um, hippies in Birkenstocks. And I said, you just described Boulder. You know, <laughs> I don't know why they would <laughs> throw a dig at Eugene. But anyway, uh, all of those rivalries are fun. Uh, the Beaver rivalry is certainly there. Uh, but, it, you know, I, I have no problem at all rooting for Oregon State, you know, unless we're playing them that time. Uh, I, 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 I like the Beavers. Uh, I think they're doing great, and I think the fact that they're doing well this year is good for us in the league. Um, but, of course, I'm still a duck, and uh, I will always be a duck. Dick, uh, you know, I appreciate you joining us. Uh, my last question is, you know, the Oregon Club of Portland was founded as a nonprofit in 1946, and it uh, continued to exist all the way through just about 2018 when when uh, it was announced that uh, it was ceasing operations 72 years later. Um, now the Duck Athletic Fund sort of takes over sort of the uh, the, the club's roles what happened there? What's what's the backstory on the end of the Oregon Club of Portland? I think it was a money issue, and I think uh, the university, or at least the athletic department, wanted to control uh, all of their fundraising. So uh, the Big Green Benefit, which was a big auction that we had started and, and I thought was quite successful, uh, they wanted to take that over, and they still run an auction now out of Eugene. But everything is focused in Eugene now. And, and uh, like I say, when Chips uh, uh, didn't want to come up to Portland and uh, everything, I don't know, the, the Mac Club charged more money and it, all of those things, I think it all just came to a point where the board of directors said, uh, you know, it's it's time we move on. Uh, I miss that. I I enjoyed you know, going to those luncheons and singing the fight song and uh, and hearing Anthony Newman uh, dissect the plays from the film and everything. And uh, 
And, of course, now they have that Talking Ducks show with uh, Anthony and Joey and, and Jordan Kent. So so there's still things for us to watch and do, uh, but times have changed. Um, the whole issue, there, there was in the, your conversation with Rich Brooks, there was some mention about uh, how the stadiums were not uh, being filled up like they used to be. And, again, I put that all on TV. Yeah. Uh, I had four seats, uh, and we always took another couple down with us to the game, but I could no longer tell them w- when the game would be and did we have to find a place to stay overnight and were they good with that, et cetera. And uh, I-, I told Rob Mullins that, you know, 45 years I've been a season ticket holder, but I, I just couldn't pencil it out anymore. Rob said, I, I understand perfectly, but, you know, that this is what we're in today. And so TV and money, as you know, uh, yep. all, all plays a role. Dick Allen, I appreciate you. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you, John. Good stuff there. Telling stories, singing songs. Leave it here. Uh, before that, though, if you want to line up for What's Your Peeve, what's bothering you? What's on your mind? Get it off your chest. I don't want you going into the weekend all fired up. 503-417-7575. Grab a line. Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Been a great show today. I am broadcasting from Research Stadium. Mostly empty Research Stadium. No fans in the stands. The lights are still on here in Corvallis. Uh, the Cal and Oregon State will be playing a game here tomorrow. Uh, about 24 hours from now, they will be kicking off. Uh, Oregon and Washington, about 44 miles from here at, at uh, Autzen Stadium, will be playing tomorrow night. Um, currently on the field here at Research Stadium, they have a recruit on the field. You know those recruiting photos where the recruit's in uniform, they're all geared up, and they're inside the stadium? You'll see them on social media, they are, uh, they've got a recruit down here, and they're taking his picture. He's currently in full beaver uniform, and he's holding the chainsaw, the turnover chainsaw. And they are videoing him, and they are taking his picture. His family is with him. The, a couple of coaches are out here with him. They've got a couple of different videographers and photographers. So Oregon State recruiting some players this weekend as well. Looks like he solved the mystery of why they had to protect the beaver in the middle yeah. of the field. And uh, it's really interesting. Like Everything's all lit up. They got the uh, stadium in full force, and, uh, you know, they're taking this kid. looks like he's a defensive end. He's wearing number 97. So when you see Oregon State tweet out some recruiting photos later or a recruit tweets them out and they retweet them, uh, this is what is happening currently on the field here at Research Stadium, uh, 24 hours in front of the game. Uh, we're going to – I thought that interview in the last segment with the uh, – guy of the uh, Oregon Club of Portland was really interesting. That club went on for 72 years before it died a death. Did Chip Kelly kill that club, guys? I think he might have. Yes, he did. He had, Chip had no time for that. <laughs> kind of feels like it. Chip Kelly just said, I'm not going to do it anymore. Uh, he did it his first couple seasons. I, I only know this because he used to call into our show while he was making the drive. And he was like, I might as well do a media appearance. And so he, he would call, he would listen to the show as he drove north on I-5, and he would call in. And we would get Chip Kelly calling in on Line 5. 
And then we would have him on for 15 or 20 minutes while he drove towards Portland for the uh, rice pilaf and the chicken. They pass the game ball around. And they tell stories and they make fun of me. That's how what they used to do. That was their <laughs> weekly ritual. Sounds like a good time, Frank. Yeah, yeah. Sounds like it's at the studio over here. Sounds I, like I it. think exactly. So <laughs> me and Judah did this afternoon. Oh, it's no. kind of like what happens at <laughs> my house. Yeah. You know, come on. Oh, the kids man. just make fun of me all week. Uh, but do, it, I'm sure. It's uh, it's uh, been a fun show today. Uh, I but my highlight was when the when the dude started singing. I yeah, I'm not even an Oregon fan. I started clapping. I started da, clapping da, in the studio. Da, 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 da. Who do you, you think know? he was? John Papadakis? I don't know. It's all about the confidence, though. <laughs> to have the confidence just to yes. bust out and sing. Yeah, yes. got He owns it. And he knew uh, not just the chorus, it. but like the verse, like yeah. the beaver. Like that guy's an OG. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. I don't think uh, most of the students at Oregon know that song. Oh, none of them do. He knows it. Yeah. yeah we got to teach that song. If, you, if you're an Oregon student, you should have to know that song to graduate. Uh, all right, we're going to play What's Your Peeve. I want you to line up. I've got a peeve. Steven's got a peeve. Judah's got a peeve. Do you have a peeve? 503-417-7575. Line up now. What's your peeve? Oh, that pisses me off. That pisses me right off. Call 503-417-7575 and tell Kinzano what's your peeve on the BFT. Brought to you right. by Revolution Dental Implant Center. <laughs> a smile revolution, Every one time. day solution. Oh, You've been doing so good. I was doing so good. I uh, lost my train of thought. I was watching the the recruit kind of run around with the chainsaw, and then I thought, oh, no. Okay, uh, let's start here. Uh, Steven, you should go first because you seemed really fired up in the 4 o'clock hour. <laughs> yeah, so uh, the Blazers' new jerseys. It's, uh, what is it, the city jerseys? It's the Portland, the PDX carpet edition. <laughs> okay, why is Portland so weird and so known to like, oh, yeah, we're so excited about the carpet at PDX. Like, I just don't understand why that's a thing. And now it's like other teams are going to just look at the Blazers jersey and say, this doesn't what? even make sense. The, Carpet? Yeah, and yeah. there's no has no color scheme to go with the Blazers. If anything, the Blazers should have gone with the Rose theme, the Rose City. Like, that would have been way better, same type of colors. But to go PDX Carpet, I mean, I don't know. Get out of here with that. I'm not a fan of it. Judah, do you agree with Steven? I like them better than the Oregon Trail garbage that we got a few years ago. Was mm. it was it Oregon Trail themed? I don't know. The brown ones that said Oregon on the front, people liked them, and I hated them. So I think these are better, so I'll go with that. That's your Portland bias, though. You just want to say yeah. Portland, not Oregon. I don't like the carpet thing either, but I, 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 what I think is what do cooler, younger people than myself think? Like, Because it's not me. I'm not their audience. I'm not, you know, the Oregon Ducks uniforms. I often have said... You know, I don't get it. I don't like the. It, but then I talked to like my daughter, who's uh, a college sophomore, and she's like, "This is the coolest thing ever." Like they should do that. Like so, my thing is, I try to read who's wearing it, and the only two people I saw in these these uniform pictures, it was Damian Lillard and it was Anthony Simons, who were kind of modeling them. Neither one of those dudes looked excited about it. <laughs> like if I, yeah, maybe I'm missing it. But. I'm with you. It's not for me, right? It wasn't. It wasn't marketed to me. But I just, you know, as a guy that's gonna have to watch them, I just think they're ugly. Judah, what's your peeve? Oh boy, uh, my peeve is, you know, I don't know. I don't have really a good one other than election results are taking too long. Mm. You know, that I'm not a politics guy at all. But you know, I voted for the local stuff this year, and yeah. uh, 
man, they're like 60% counted. Like, yeah. come on now. It's Friday. It, it, this happened in May as well. I was like, come on, let's get these results in, man. Yeah, all right. That's that's fair enough. I, th- I saw where Herschel Walker, there's a runoff going on in that election. Oh, like, yeah, you know, do we need that? What, shouldn't it have been over already? Yeah, it should have been. I mean, Herschel yeah. should win that race, right, if it's a running race? <laughs> and if it's about running off. Very good point. Yeah. Uh, how about this? Here's my peeve. Uh, this story out of Miami, Miami-Dade County and the Miami Heat are ending their arena naming rights deal because FTX, the arena was called the FTX Arena, has gone uh, bankrupt. They're a cryptocurrency firm. Uh, they signed a 19-year, $135 million deal with, to be the uh, home court's name. They made a balloon payment in the beginning, $14 million. They were supposed to make a $5.5 million payment in January. It's not coming. It'll still be called FTX Arena for Saturday's game with the Heat and the Hornets playing. But uh, Miami-Dade County and the Miami Heat are terminating the business relationship with FTX. This reminds me of Enron Field and the Houston Astros. Uh, and for those of you out there that think that uh, these arena people, stadium people, need to do their work, their diligence, like maybe it wasn't such a good idea to go with a cryptocurrency firm as your naming rights. So uh, the uh, FTX arena thing, it will still be called FTX, but there will be no more FTX uh, as they have gone bankrupt. Didn't the Blazers have a jersey patch crypto partner for, yes. for a hot second? They did. And they cut ties with that, too? There were some problems with that, too, because there was a bunch of consumer complaints with that company as well. So, (laughs) like, I just think these, you know, look, everybody's chasing the shortest path to a dollar in these sponsorship deals with teams and naming rights and arenas. Like, I get it. I understand the motivation. But when it's the name of your arena, maybe you should take do some diligence there and, you know, just make sure that. This is something you can stand behind, a partnership you want to be in, and, oh, by the way, are they going to make the payment? Yeah, to go with this segment, you know, Pete, Larry David did a Super Bowl commercial about FTX, about how it was a terrible idea, and it didn't work, and yeah. then, but he's been wrong his whole career. And so now, you know, it kind of came true. It came true. came to fruition. Well, Larry. That's, that's our peeve. Coming up, uh, what's on tap? What you should be watching this weekend? We got it for you. Leave it here. Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano. Peter Sampson is up next with The Pulse from 6 to 7 on 750 The Game. I appreciate those of you listening in Portland on 750 The Game or in Eugene on Fox Sports Eugene. Shout out to uh, the uh, listeners in uh, Douglas County uh, listening on 1490 AM and, of course, in Klamath Falls uh, on 960 AM. appreciate everybody on the network. Uh, I am at Research Stadium today broadcasting. Oregon State will play Cal here 6 o'clock tomorrow, uh, about 24 hours from now. Bears and Beavers will kick off here at Research Stadium. Uh, tickets are hard to come by, of course, with the stadium capacity being at 27,000 plus. Uh, 44 miles from here, it'll be uh, Washington and Oregon at Autzen Stadium. Huge game in that rivalry. We've talked all about it. If you want our picks, you can grab the podcast. Uh, It's been a great show today. I'm going to finish today with what's on tap. I'm going to tell you what's going on in the weekend, what you can be watching in the Pac-12, what are the big college games that you should be tuned into, and, of course, the NFL. Let's do it. Now it's time for what's on tap and what's on TV at the Independent on the BFT. Well, tonight, 6.30, half hour from now, Colorado will be at USC on FS1. 
Tomorrow it starts at 12.30 in the Pac-12. Arizona State, Washington State on the Pac-12 Networks. Ducks, Huskies at Autzen Stadium on Fox, 4 o'clock. I mentioned Cal and Oregon State, 6 o'clock kickoff on the Pac-12 Network. And uh, Stanford, Utah on ESPN at 7 o'clock. And the nightcap in the Pac-12 is Arizona, UCLA, 7.30 on Fox. Big games going on in college football that you care about. TCU, number four in the college football playoff rankings, plays number 18, Texas. TCU is the Big 12 leader. Uh, keep an eye on this game. It will happen at 4.30 on, e, on ABC, rather, not ESPN. ABC, 4.30, TCU will play. LSU plays at Arkansas. That game's at uh, 9 a.m. on ESPN if you want to get started early. And, of course, in the NFL, let's talk about the NFL on Sunday. It'll be early Sunday morning for Seahawks fans. Are the Seahawks any good or not? I don't know. Let's see where they end up. They're 6-3, and three, though. They've played well. They'll be at the Buccaneers but that game will be taking place overseas in Europe. It'll be a 6.30 a.m. kickoff on the NFL Networks. For those of you who want to watch the eventual Super Bowl champions, they'll be playing much later on Sunday. 5.20, 49ers hosting the Chargers. Niners getting a bunch of uh, players back. Let's see how they look against Justin Herbert and the Chargers on Sunday night football. That's what's going on uh, this this, uh, weekend. That's what you should be watching. Now, David in Vancouver is called in. He has a peeve. He's a little late. That could be my peeve. David, what's what's your peeve? Come on. Okay, it's about the finger thing, man. Yeah. So uh, I, I researched it a little bit because it drove me nuts. Yeah. You know, uh, my parents, my teachers, my professors, I don't recall ever knowing that, uh, you know, your four fingers have three phalanges. Yeah. And your thumb only has two. Nobody told you that. Nobody told me that either. Why did I didn't notice that till fifteen minutes ago? And I maybe I wasn't paying attention when the the professor was talking about that. But uh, yeah, I feel like we got thumb, robbed. Like nobody educated us properly. Think if your thumb had three bones. Look at your hands right now. Yeah, think if your thumb it. had that'd be weird. And <laughs> that's why your thumb is so strong. Yeah, is because they're bigger bones. And it's fatter, and there's only two bones. Does the does so. the thumb does the thumb count as a finger? Uh, not according. No, it's a digit. Then why is the pinky called the fifth finger? I know. I looked that up too, and it still is. Yeah. See. I didn't look up. I someone should Google third finger and see what that says. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I didn't do that. Is that your ring finger? Is your third finger your ring finger, or is it your middle finger? I don't know. See. That's that's why you come to the show, so that you can go off into your weekend confused about which finger is which. All right, uh, final thoughts here today. I think Oregon's going to blow out Washington tomorrow at Autzen Stadium. I think Oregon State will beat Cal. I think we're going to set up a huge week next week. So we got big radio next week on this show. I appreciate the statewide audience that tunes in all the time. Uh, we'll take you wherever the story is. Uh, I want you all to have a good weekend. Grab the podcast. If uh, if that's your thing, you can find the podcast wherever you find a podcast. Uh, I don't think I need to tell you that. Uh, Stephen, I appreciate you. Judah, coming up next, Peter Sampson in the Pulse. I want you to leave it tuned in here on 750 The Game. Peter will take you home on the Pulse. So that is still ahead right here on 750 The Game.